have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember Southern Sense is common sense. shortages, supply chain breakdowns continue to have a domino effect on everything, especially food production. Farmers can't plant as many crops now because of fertilizer shortages, forced regulations, and of course, high fuel prices. This will cause more painful food shortages when we run out of the food we're eating now. You know, food takes time to grow. So when farmers don't plant, well, months later, we don't eat. That's why you need to prepare for an increasing number of food shortages. And the best way is to invest in ready-hour emergency food from My Patriot Supply. It's a perfect hedge against skyrocketing prices and shortages. Right now, save $50 on a four-week food kit from My Patriot Supply. Go to preparewithsouthernsense.com and get your $50 savings on a four-week emergency food kit that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's preparewithsouthernsense.com. Those who know what's coming are getting prepared now. Well, if you don't want to type in that whole big thing saying preparewithsouthernsense.com and you're on my website, which is Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern hyphen sense, as in commonsense.com, you can easily click on My Patriot Supply and go directly to the website and get your $50 savings. As I'm telling you now, those who know what's coming are getting prepared right now. Shouldn't you? Prepare with southern-sense.com. 
at southern-sense.com. Click on My Patriot Supply. Do it now. All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Global Enlightenment Radio, iHeart Radio, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the least mostest, the radio chickadee, Annie. And today, Curtis is not with us. He is closing on his house today. Ted Yoho is standing in for Curtis in a speech, so he's not with us. So I dug really deep and down to the bottom of the barrel, and mama mia, no Sharia, what did I come up with? My deplorable Guido, Vito Esposito. Good afternoon, Vito. How are you today? I am well, Eddie. How are you doing? (laughs) You had a dig somewhere. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. Well, we've got ourselves a rock and rolling uh, uh, lineup here. Uh, we've got the founder and CEO of Tusk. It's a new web browser for conservatives with conservative news outlets on it. I shouldn't say all conservative news outlets. They do have others on the uh, on the on the website that you can hook up into, so you can get from all different sides your news. You choose what shows up on your feed and where you can search. Um, they're doing a lot more work with the search engine. I don't know where he stands now. We'll find out today. But we'll be talking to him about issues of the day, such as Twitter and all the other stuff, that craziness that's going on out there. Uh, that is going to be followed by William Doyle. Uh, he is uh, the author of a new book, Titan of the Senate, Orrin Hatch and the Once and Future Golden Age of Bipartisanship. Oh, boy, boy, is that a misnomer in this last administration, this current administration, I should say, bipartisanship. That, that's, forget about it. <laughs> Can we say Liz Cheney? <laughs> uh, but we'll be talking a little bit about his book. Now, to be honest, I booked him with not enough time to read his book, but I intend to read it and have him come back on so we can have a more in-depth uh, discussion about Orrin Hatch and whether or not we'll have a future of bipartisanship with this incoming Congress and Senate. We'll be talking a lot about that today, too, and the elections and everything else that's going on, including he's heavily into following the current education system. And, oh, boy, what a mess that is. But the mama bears and papa bears are out there and tearing apart school boards across the nation. Like I said, a lot to talk about. And I'm going to be happy to say – how many remember uh, when Reagan, was it Reagan or was it Bush, that nominated Robert Bork for the Supreme Court? And it ended up, the attacks that were on him caused a new phrase saying that you just got borked. Well, we're going to have his son on. He is the president of an antitrust education project, and he also heads the Bork Group, a public affairs agency. So his son will be coming on, uh, and he has a lot to say about what's going on. And then we have, you know, coming back, I think it must be a fifth, sixth, seventh time, I don't know, I lose track, Jonathan Butcher of the Heritage Foundation, Will Skillman Fellow in Education. You notice how all this comes around to education? It's, it's amazing how when I book guests, I never have a theme in my mind, but that just seems to fall into place. I think the good Lord's looking over my shoulder, Vito, just making sure I stay in line with the Christian conservative message. What do you think? 
<laughs> I think uh, you know you have a lot of uh, a lot of intuition, and it and it speaks very well as to how you 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 organize your guests. And you see, it just it it's it's the perfection of the radio chick that, that, that <laughs> you can't really talk enough about. <laughs> well, prior to coming on air, you mentioned that you enjoyed watching uh, the video up on YouTube, uh, and for some reason, believe it or not. Facebook keeps on pulling my, my video, this show down, off of my own Tea Party webpage. It keeps on saying the administration is not allowing it. Well, damn it, it's my own page. I keep even posting to the Tea Party. But anyway, we're up on Facebook if people want to watch over there, also on YouTube, as well as on our homepage, which is Southern Sense. Just put a dash in there. You can watch the video up there also. Or listen on Spreaker over there if you can't get through on Blog Talk Radio. So I want to welcome everyone that is listening over and watching over on YouTube and Facebook on Southern Sense, <laughs> but not on the Beaufort Tea Party. <laughs> and... Um, you did correct me. Yes, Bork was nominated in 87 under Reagan's last term. I thought it was. I just couldn't quite remember. Yep. I was busy. I was coming out of the police academy chasing bad guys down in the streets of Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> you shed a gun. Uh-oh. <laughs> a gun? A gun? <laughs> but, uh, I'm just, just – I was trying to temper it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> But, Vito, while I have you on here, the people are just starting to tune in. Tell them where they can find your show and what it's about. Great. We're, uh, I'm located at uh, Global Patriot Radio. Uh, we're also on Block Talk Radio. Uh, my show airs on Monday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern Time with Big Al. Uh, we have a network of, of shows seven days a week with, uh, with seven different hosts or six different hosts. And, uh uh, we we talk about uh, counter jihad, counter terrorism, and politics. And uh, of course, the uh, the American politics is hot right now, especially given the the the, uh, the the midterm elections just finishing up and the the cheating. I'm sorry, and the voting that occurred uh, this last week. And, uh, uh, and so we like to talk politics and and of course uh, how really how bad Joe Biden really is, and, and it's, it's, it's just kind of pathetic. But, uh, hey, he has a rival now in the, that's going to be a Senate, Senator-elect uh, John Fetterman, so that should be interesting having both of them, uh, you know, have dialogue together. But we're at 6 o'clock on Mondays uh, right here on Blog Talk Radio uh, under Global Patriot Radio. Well, I, I always try to uh, listen to you, but since I've got something new in my love life, <laughs> that takes up a little bit more time than you do. <laughs> Mama mia. <laughs> I do have Plus, to give you a pass on that one. <laughs> Plus, I normally host my tea party meetings on a, one Monday a month, so that also interferes. But, you know, we're still out there with the fight. <laughs> we still love you. That's right. That's right. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I get to watch you on, on YouTube and, and Facebook, so it's really kind of nice. <laughs> well, well, don't beat me up, because when you watch the video from today's show, uh, take a look at the avatar I put up for you on the video. Uh-oh. <laughs> don't beat me up. <laughs> All right. I'm making a note. You're probably avatar. going over to it right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, you have to call my paisans all around the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put this way. You've gone to the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, that aside, on a little bit more of a serious note, uh, those that listen to our show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to police officer Christopher Nicholas Fiorello of the Tennessee Police Department out of Florida. His end of watch was Wednesday, June 8th of this year. And this is from Julie Montanero from WCTV, and it reads, The Tallahassee Police Department has now released the officer killed in the deadly crash as Christopher Fariello. He was 33. Fariello had graduated from the Florida State University in 2012 with a degree in criminology and was a member of the TPD's force for three years. Killed early that Wednesday morning when Tampa Police Department says a fleeing suspect accused of shooting three family members turned his car around, drove into incoming traffic, and crashed into Fariello's car. Officer Fariello's death is a stark reminder of the sacrifice the grave, the, I'm sorry, the brave men and women of this department make every day. Chief Lawrence Ravel said in a statement, they put on the uniform and walk into the unknown to protect and serve this community. We are thankful for Officer Fariello's service. Please continue to keep his family and the entire department in your thoughts and prayers as we grieve this loss together, the chief said. Fariello had been on the force since 2019. He was among the officers featured in a WCTV story on January 11, 2019, when he and 10 other officers were sworn in at City Hall. He started as a trainee in July 2018, according to the Tampa Police Department. The Florida Police Benevolent Association's Big Bend chapter shared that Fariello used to work as an officer with the Wilton Manors Police Department in Broward County. He worked for the Wilton Mariners Police Department as a code compliance administrative assistant and was promoted to police service aide before returning to Tallahassee to work as a patrol officer, according to the Tallahassee Police Department. They say Officer Fariello will be celebrated with full law enforcement honors. In lieu of flowers, the family has asked that donations be made to the Christopher Fariello Scholarship Fund for Law Enforcement which can be made payable to the TCC Foundation, care of Officer Christopher Fariello Scholarship at 444 Apple Yard Drive in Tallahassee, Florida, 32304. It continues on Tallahassee.com, and this reads, On the day McKenna Zwedorf was sworn in as Officer 727, she met the man who would soon become her best friend, Christopher Fariello, Officer 726. The pair quickly bonded through banter and shared a love of Disney. He made fun of her incessant use of note cards when studying for exams. Though, she soon had a punchline when the only exam he failed was an open note test. <laughs> 
We didn't let him live that one down, as Weidorf said with a gentle laugh. Within the last four years, they went to Disney World together in well-planned vacations where they wore matching T-shirts. Back in Tallahassee, she was eventually transferred to his midnight rotation and began to work alongside the man she'd only known outside of their hours in uniform. It was during this time she learned Fariello's honesty, humor, and courageousness carried into his work, just as she had imagined. He was one of the most important people in my life, she said. That last Wednesday, while helping a Leon County deputy pursue an attempted murder suspect, he was killed when the man drove head-on into Fariello's squad car. He was only 33. What happened to Chris is a nightmare. It's something we never fully going to wake up from, nor will we fully ever recover from, Zweidorf said through tears. That's something I know Chris would want to say, as he would be proud of every single person who was there with him that night. I know I was. Zweidorf was one of six speakers who took to the podium in front of over 1,000 people packed into the Donald L. Tucker Civic Center and relayed heartfelt and humorous antidotes in a celebration of Fariello's wife that morning. The service opened with a declaration that Fariello was, quote, forever a hero, unquote. Angela Barnett, Fariello's cousin, gave a tearful account of the man who she said could not be adequately described in words. He was the kind of man who always did the right thing. And he never bragged about it. He just did it, she said. Before, she described his fervent love for the Seminoles and Tallahassee through routines like drinking at Proof Brewery, eating at Madison Social for brunch, or at Gordo's Run before a game. Variello loved Tallahassee, Barnett said, and even convinced his family to locate from South Florida so he could stay at TPD. This city screams your name, and I don't think I'll ever be able to step foot here again, she said. You are my best friend. I love you, Christopher. Two hours before the event at the stadium began, about 75 people stood along the tree-lined street of East 7th Avenue to show their appreciation for Fariello's sacrifice by holding their hands over their hearts as the procession of over 400 law enforcement vehicles passed by. Christopher's badge is pinned by a family member Friday. He was one of 11 Tallahassee police officers sworn in. Many of them did not know him personally. One woman, Susan Springer, whose father was a Florida Highway Patrol trooper, found out about the procession through next door. Oh, my goodness, that was amazing, she said as the final vehicle passed by. Something like this just touches your heart. It's very meaningful. At the ceremony, Chief Lawrence Revelle presented Fariello's parents, Richard and Teresa, with the Purple Heart Award and the Medal of Honor, the highest award presented by the Tallahassee Police Department. Christopher gave his last breath defending this community, he said. We honor you, Christopher, and let our work every day 
bring more and more honor to the ultimate sacrifice carried out by Christopher Fariello, Officer 726. A United States flag, an honor flag, which has traveled the country to honor law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty, was draped over Fariello's silver casket. Following a video of the Tallahassee Police Department officers discussing their friend, honor guards wrapped up the flag and handed their gloves to his parents. Hundreds of officers in the arena turned on their radios before one man issued a ceremonial last call to Fariello. Officer 726, the man called before a sustaining beep began to ring out. Out of service, now and forevermore. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Fariello. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency service. We also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this great nation through today and into our hopeful future. We dedicate this song by my friend, Todd Allen Herndon. My name is America. May God bless each and every one.
and we're back here on here live listening to Southern Sense on Blog Talk Radio. S H S S H S R. Oh, forget about S H R. Meaning something like that. One of those things. How the heck was? Just go to our homepage, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle. Will you find us on Facebook, YouTube, iHeartRadio, and half a million other places? I have no idea where we're at. What the heck I'm doing here today? <laughs> My guest co-host is the one, the only, the deplorable Guido Vito Esposito. <laughs> Jesus. I think I need more than three hours sleep at night. <laughs> Maybe four, <laughs> so you know where you're at. Oh, oh man. <laughs> uh, what planet are we on? What planet no, are we on? That's, that's the first question. <laughs> Not many um, people know today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, we're waiting for our first guest to call in, but I caught something. I don't know if maybe someone listening in in the chat room will know what I'm talking about, but there was one of the states had um, – ballot harvesting, where they actually went door to door picking up ballots. These are the mail-in ballots, and people who get the ballot mailed to the House, and other people going over picking up the mail-in ballots. So there's questions as to whether or not the ballot was turned in in its original intact form or had been altered, which may have changed the results in some of these elections. And if anyone knows what state, I only heard it just about five minutes before coming on air. And I didn't catch the whole thing. I didn't have time to go back and look. So if anyone knows which state this is, but something is, was breaking just as coming on air. Well, why should there be any more doubt that's created in the news, right, about, about the elections? Huh? Why? I, 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 don't, I don't get it, you know? I mean, how much more how much more um, doubt should there be created in the American people's mind that, about the free and fair elections? Yeah. It's now, meanwhile, amazing. everyone thought that Katie, everyone thought Katie Lake was a hands down winner. How this woman pulled up from behind, from way, way behind, and never once debated her, how she got mm-hmm. that seat, it can't be honest. It cannot, uh, uh, truly, it cannot be honest. I I have to agree with you on that one. That one is very very suspect. I mean, how how Hobbs just absolutely avoided any any uh, uh, public confrontation or public debating with with Carrie Lake, knowing that she would lose because of of how foolish uh, Hobbs looked, and then to come back from from the deficit she was in, and they just kept finding ballots, ballot dumping, ballot dumping. Very very suspect. It is. It is a l- very, very suspect. And you look at the um, aftermath of Trump's making his announcement and how many people are taking people that Trump endorsed and throwing them completely under the breast, including Carrie Lake, because her primary opponent has now been doing the rounds on all the major networks, including Newsmax. And I saw her appear a couple of times in Newsmax, bashing uh, 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 Lake and, you know, the the Republicans' choice in nominating her. Wait a minute. It's the voters' choice that nominated right. her. You know, and they say, oh, they didn't put up good quality candidates. Well, excuse me, you were one of those, quote, good quality candidates that went forward. But the people said no to you. But now that they're throwing anyone associated with Trump under the bus saying, you lost the elections. There was no red wave. 
um, maybe not in those pivotal states that you anticipated, but of course the rest of the nation, yes, there was. And if you look at the map, how red the map is. And even in states where, let's say, Laxalt lost, okay, if you look at that, there's, what, 15 or 16 counties in Nevada. Laxalt wins 11, loses three, and loses the election. And there's another one with ballot dumping that, was, that went on uh, that should be very, very suspect. And, of course, with, the, with Harry Reid's son running Clark County, you know, you would, you would also – expect there to be voter irregularities. I'm sorry, you would, you would expect that uh, Clark counties would go for, well, the larger counties would go for any Democrat that's, being, uh, that's running for, for any type of uh, nationwide seat. Um, just, I find Katie Hobbs to be absolutely a, an abhorrent individual. She's, she's, a, she's a cheater, a liar, and, uh, um, and she fits the bill for the, today's Democrat Party. She's she's the great chimpanzee that was that was put forward in order to, to to start this phony narrative about the quality of candidates. No, absolutely, and it looks like we may have our guest in on the line. Let me bring him aboard, and I do believe that we have here the CEO and founder of Tusk, a free speech browser, Jeff Berment. Good afternoon, Jeff, and welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you, and uh, I'm sorry I'm a little late here. Just had to get a couple things cleaned up in the office, and I'm all yours. <laughs> Just don't tell my boyfriend that, that you're all mine. He'll get jealous. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, and if I told my wife, I'd be taken out and shot, too, so don't worry. <laughs> I'll loan her one of my firearms. <laughs> yeah, you know, she has her own. Don't worry. She's no. conservative enough to own her own gun. <laughs> oh man! Ooh, we Don't were talking about. Her, please. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mrs. Birdman, call me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> uh, listen, um, we were discussing, you know, this recent red wave that the media is not acknowledging, and it, it's it's amazing how the social media, as well as lamestream media. Uh, is portraying this as not a red wave, but if you look at how red the map has become, it's those tight urban areas that control the states, keeping them either purple or or or, or blue, like where we're just discussing Nevada and Arizona. Uh, this they, they're not telling the truth. Gee, isn't that a miracle? Yeah, that could very well be. Yeah, I, I what I <laughs> thought I saw was that. Six, six million more, and I'm not sure about this number, actually voted red. But, you know, when you get to these closely, uh, these close states, um, you know, we lost some that maybe we would have had, maybe we would have won. But, um, yeah, it's still, look, look, a win is a win, and we have control of the House finally, and maybe this all the spending will stop and all the nonsense that uh, I don't, I don't, think we'll have a lot of progress on a lot of bills because you know the president whatever they can work out uh the president gets to veto anything and you're not going to get by the senate so the stalemate you know the markets like the stalemate and uh it's better than just the free reign that the the blues you know the democrats had well now this is a good thing if government goes to a complete standstill that's a good thing for the rest of us because then they don't screw us up any more than they already have. 
But again, that was what our founding fathers intended. They wanted things to go slow. They didn't want stuff rushed through and passed through. But, you know, now I I totally agree. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. And I think it's a good thing that we're going to slow things down. Um, We need to be very careful who we select as the, the presidential candidate. They have to, in my opinion, has to have a fairly wide berth of people that will not find, you know, the person to be obnoxious, rude. Uh, we need to find somebody who's really centered. I really, you know, this is a personal opinion. I really like Ron DeSantis. I think he's just done a marvelous job in Florida. And, uh, and there's some other great candidates who have not announced yet. None of them announced except for Trump. But I really like Ron DeSantis. I, I like Tim Scott. There's a, there's a, bunch of them who I and mean, what's great about the republican party is they have a very deep bench where as the democrats uh i you know i just don't know who they are i think they're deepest on the bench which is a possibility is michelle obama no <laughs> yo that's a scary thought that's a very very scary thought yeah but, you know, no i know I, I i saw her on tv the other day i saw people on tv the other day talking about how they wanted her to run she would be popular for sure whether she'd make a good president well that's probably not a great story <laughs> no it's not it's, it is not um, but uh, now I just lost my credit my always said the best take that we could possibly have is one where it's Trump but his vice president pick would be DeSantis that way he grooms DeSantis for um, four years from now to run for eight years to carry on the legacy. I think that would be the ideal ticket. You get Trump and the Trump crowd, but the never-Trumpers who, who want DeSantis will say, well, DeSantis is on the ticket. Well, let's go for it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm more in the camp. I mean, honestly, there's going to be a discussion. I will support whatever Republican uh, ends up, conservative ends up, you know, the head of the, the party. I personally think that um, there's, you know, we're kind of looking backwards. We need to look to the new generation, which is, you know, DeSantis or someone else who's in their 40s, uh, which seems like a kid to me now. But uh, I, I just think maybe we need some new blood. Trump, Trump is fine, but I, I think we can. I think we, I think we would do better uh, and safer of winning them. And my whole point is, it's, it's kind of like a tennis match, maybe. I wasn't, you know, I, I, I love playing tennis, or I used to, and I'd love to go out and play the match, but I wasn't the best suited to win. And I, and I, I respect that, and I wanted to win. I wanted our team to win more than I wanted to win. Wow. Well, my guest co-host today is Vito Esposito from Global Patriot Radio. So, Vito, feel free to jump on in here. And I'm going to ask you about TikTok later on. Okay. Yeah, welcome. I, I like your, uh, Hi, your your platform, Tusk. Uh, that's a really uh, really cool search engine. How's it going with the with the search engine? Well, we, we it's it, the the browser's doing really well. I'm very proud of what my team has built. Um, this is, you know, it's really a conservative platform for conservatives. Uh, I've run into my first um, cancellation though. <laughs> I have to tell you, uh, it was an eye opener. But I was canceled by a crowdfunding company. Uh, I've appealed the the uh, the um, cancellation, and they canceled me, believe it or not, because in our slide deck, which is the presentation that you make, and I've been working with this company 
for four months. They spotted the word gab, you know, like the social platform, and they canceled me. And uh, I was shocked that it was just a, a mention that, uh, that conservatives, you know, if you, if you push them down on Twitter, they're going to make their own um, social sites. And that was all that was, was to be. And what they do, they canceled me. So I, I got my first taste of, uh, of cancel culture. <laughs> well, join the club because I got canceled on YouTube, a, a channel that I've nurtured for close to 12 years with all my listeners, and they canceled me out completely. And I ended up having to go back to scratch, and so now I'm trying to rebuild 10 years of uh, 12 years of followers. And, and that's, that really ticks me off. And there's no way, there's no recourse to turn around and say, hey, listen, you know, why did you cancel me? They said, for misinformation. Well, you have experts like yourself in your field coming on to talk about what you do and what. No, no, experts are misinformation. I love that idea. Yeah, no, it's uh, so. Uh, to answer your question on our search, our search engine is principally backed at this moment by Yahoo, which to me is you know not particularly satisfactory. It doesn't give us the search results which I want to have and. My idea of a search result should be that it's user-centric and not up to the company. I don't want to be in charge of what people really want to see and they want to read about. I want the person, it's just like going to the library. The librarian shouldn't be out there picking up the books for you. You should go to the library and pick out the books you want. And it shouldn't be, which is what the web is, for for the librarian to tell you, by the way, your book is on the fifth floor of the basement and there's no elevator. So now you have to walk down five flights of stairs to get the book you want. Well, it's the same thing on a search engine where the three major search engines, which is Yahoo, uh, uh, MSN, or Microsoft, which is Bing, and, and um, Google, uh, they all put your, your stack of books in the basement. And I'm here to change that and make it so at least you don't have to walk to the basement to find out what you're looking for. Yeah, I have to apologize. I normally have a good video going, but for some reason part of my computer system is locking up. So your gorgeous face, Jeff, is not showing up on the screen, just mine. So uh, asking listeners to bear with me because the system froze up. I can take callers, but I can't I am on the the phone line, so that's why I I, I just followed the instructions to dial in. There wasn't a link for me to to come on on Skype or something. We have... We haven't professed, uh, gotten that to the point where I can actually do that very well. Uh, I'm a little, as I'm older, a little more techno uh, challenged. <laughs> but I have an own video that would pop a, a still picture of you up oh. as you're talking to me. So people know uh. that I'm talking to Jeff Ermet of Tusk. Uh, so they would know and where to go to your website, which is at tusk.org, correct? Uh, no, it's uh, tuskbrowser.com. Tuskbrowser.com. You'll get all the information about us, and we are working feverishly uh, to a new search engine that will do exactly what I want it to do. It will give you the choice, left, right, or center. I'm hoping for a beta for this uh, by the end of January, and then we will be raising money to eventually build our own search engine so there's never interference because I fear even what, what we're doing today, there'll be interference by the left because they just don't want to hear from you. No, exactly. Now, um, 
I have someone that dug in the chat room that mentions he uses DuckDuckGo, which I also use because it doesn't track. Are you going to build that into your search engine too so it doesn't track people? Because that's really annoying. Well, yeah, the tracking is annoying. I think what we'll be doing is we will not allow um, sites to, to follow you around so there will be an anti-blocker. Uh, if you go to a, you know, to a web page and you buy something, it's the way we get paid. So I hope um, users will understand, you know, there's, there really is nothing that's free. We've got to get paid. We've got to make some money for our investors or we'll die. So I hope people will put up with sort of the same kind of DuckDuckGo. But DuckDuckGo is not a conservative site. It is better for privacy. We will do our best to, to not allow sites to track you around the web um, and, uh, and, and, and so give you some privacy, but at the same time understand that if we don't make any money, like DuckDuckGo, DuckDuckGo makes money, uh, you're out of business. Yeah, and that's, that's a shame. Um, I wanted to bring you around to TikTok. And when they first came out, I'm saying, wait a minute, this looks a little bit too good to be true. So I did a little digging. And then I found that it had ties to China. And then as I learned more and more, it was a lot more, and I love this word, insidious than most people realize. There was a purpose to China creating TikTok. And you've got a lot of blissful idiots that continue to use it no matter how much the rest of it is screaming. You know, get off it. It's not a, a site you want to be on. What is the story with TikTok, and why is it now uh, Republican leaders in the Senate and House want to have it banned in the U.S.? Well, the way that and, – and, and my chief marketing officer, by the way, lived in China for 14 years, so he, he knows better than anybody uh, about the Chinese government. So the Chinese government really doesn't authorize anything without the Chinese government being involved. And the, uh, my understanding is one of the communist China actually sit on the board of the company. They don't directly, uh, you know, make the decisions, but they do collect all the information. So while we're having a great time, it's kind of like you got on the seesaw and you're jumping up and down, you're having a wonderful time. Somebody is watching every move you're making, and I'm sure they're recording that and keeping it. Uh, now, what harm does it do at this point? That's a little, a little more difficult to know, but my, my, my guess would be that they would recognize potentially putting, uh, you know, maybe uh, advertising up that is to try and win you over as a socialist or a communist. Uh, so I, I, have, I have strong feelings that we really don't need TikTok, uh, and we should develop our own kinds of TikTok and, and, uh, and take them out of the picture. It's a security issue, probably. It is. It is a very big security issue because now we're finding military men and women are on TikTok, which means they can track where the person is, what they're doing, have an idea about the mentality and physical fitness. There's a lot of things that, that they can access once they have access to your computer because you install TikTok on your, your smart device. They know what's going on everywhere. You've got to spy yeah, on your, can, your smart device. Yeah, the you know the way Apple works, uh, and I, I don't know exactly Google. I'm, I'm a little more familiar with Apple, but Apple says, do you allow someone to follow you, or you don't allow somebody to follow? But once they're on your phone, 
the Chinese are smart enough to see all your other apps. Um, they're also able to, if you say allow, so they can follow you around, uh, they can see down to the 10 feet of where you went. And so, you know, with some sophistication, they can, they know everything you're doing. And is that something that this is a hostile country to us? I mean, we're trying to keep peace with them, but they're hostile. They have outrightly said that they basically want to dominate the world and they want the world to, to follow their government structure. So um, I, I think, you know, for all the fun people have on TikTok, uh, I, you know, go to a different amusement park. That would be my, my suggestion. <laughs> well, you know, it's like, it's like Google because I one day opened up my phone and I wasn't, I didn't know what was going on at the time. You know, I was naive. I opened up my phone. I get a message from Google. Would you like to see where you've been? I'm like, excuse me? And it showed me everywhere I went over a one-week period. Now, that's scary. I immediately found out how to turn that off and turned it off straight away. But how many people have Google app on there? They're using it for their maps. I turn it on for the map when I'm going from point A to point B when I need directions, and then I turn it off. But most people don't. And to them, this is natural now to have Big Brother looking over their shoulder 24-7, and it doesn't bother them. Yeah, and it should. I mean, the the other part about this is Google, and, and for clarification, since I, I run a real estate company, I own a real estate company, we actually have Google as one of our tenants. But, uh, you know, about the privacy issue and what they've been doing to Republicans, um, the last election, as you know, and they were sued for this, and they were, um, they were sending political campaign emails for Republicans, and they were sending them to spam folders. And they weren't sending the Democrats uh, uh, emails to spam folders for uh, outreach to their uh, citizens. So, yeah, I'm, what I'm trying to do at, at, at Tusk is at least uh, even the playing field. Uh, I don't believe that some, some team comes out of the locker room, and I'll use a, a football uh, euphemism, that they should be up 14 to nothing before you get on the field. And so at least we should have some par. Uh, I actually will give some advantage to conservatives because I feel like they are the underserved. And this is about, in my, in my mind, about discrimination. It's a political discrimination, which I think is just as bad as, as racial discrimination. Spot 14 on. to nothing. Wasn't that the Washington game on Monday night? <laughs> Before they even I think it was. <laughs> I didn't copy that, by the way. I just, just wanted to use it as an example. <laughs> See, we, we don't play football around here. Nah, nah, nah. We don't follow the pools. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we need new social media out there because we've we've got where – Facebook, just several days before the elections, um, sent me a message saying that they're not going to allow any political ads prior to the election, and then it's going to be a blackout period. Now, I maintain several different Facebook pages. You know, one is personal, uh, one is for my tea party, one is for the show. Uh, so I keep them separate. And none of my other pages receive this message, only the show page. Now, I found that very strange. So we do have them targeting specific conservative areas where they're afraid that we might influence the election the way that Zuckerberg doesn't want it to go. 
Yeah, while Zuckerberg, by the way, I think mean, he didn't do it this election. I don't know how many millions he spent, but the last one that was like $340 million he spent on the Democrats. So, you know, this is there's a hypocrisy going on uh, that's, you know, it's out of this world. And, and as I said, that's the reason why we exist is because I decided the hypocrisy was too much. Uh, we've been building browsers. My real career was real estate, and then I got into building browsers and decided, well, what we ultimately need, because the browser really doesn't help you a lot, we give you news feeds that are conservative, and we give you easy-to-use links, but we don't have a, really a great search engine yet, and that's really what this is about, is to build a, a search engine that you decide, and this is what I think is super important. I don't want to discourage liberals, because I want liberals to see what conservatives are thinking about and how we, how we process things. So I actually invite them to come on, but I also want to make sure that conservatives are not buried. You shouldn't have to go to page five to get a Breitbart story about uh, Biden. (laughs) I I have a question for uh, how long will it take you to to possibly uh, get your own uh, search engine up if you once you leave uh, Yahoo? So right now we're working on a, a new product. It's it it will be underlying by one of the uh, one of the search engines, but they will allow us to re-rank, which is really in, the important part. Is to re-rank, push up, push down. So for instance, if you're a conservative and you like conservative search, you want that first. That will pop up first, and then you can you can actually designate and go over to center or to left. I believe we can have the prototype done by the end of January. My guys are saying first of January, but whenever the software guys tell you the first of January, add three months to it. So I'm hoping actually that we'll have beta in January, February. We'll announce launch. Hopefully it's CPAC. That's my plan. We have uh, Matt Schlapp and Mercedes Schlapp are two advisors for me. I love them. They're just wonderful people and hardworking uh, conservatives. And then to build our own, which really ultimately you want to do because you don't want to be kowtowing to Bing or to Yahoo or anybody else, uh, that will take a year, and it's probably about a $10 million raise. And I, I do have sincere interest from billionaires to help us fund this. I do have a crowdfunding. If they would stop canceling me, I have a crowdfunding plan uh, in mind because I do think that the whole community should get a chance to invest as little as $100. I just believe that that's a more democratic way of going, which is instead of all the big fat cats getting in and getting rich, I'm not saying if you put in $100, you'll end up with a million dollars, but at least you'll make something on your money and you'll know you've contributed to a good cause. Gee, I wonder, because I think Gab started off that way, too, and I did an investment with him, but you know what? I never followed it up to find out whatever happened to that. <laughs> I think it might be, I may did be a you, millionaire uh, without you, even knowing it. Yeah, you could. Did you do that on Start Engine? Uh, I did it so long ago when he was just, when he just started up. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, the... <laughs> Uh, this is one of the issues that's out there. Uh, when I put the word gab in, uh, I, and, and unknowingly, we were just making a comparison. The, the lights went off at the crowdfunding company, and they went berserk. They sent me a letter. I was just shocking. 
that they canceled me. And I was like, what are you canceling me about? I'm, you know, we're all, Amer- I'm an all American guy. Uh, we're trying to even the playing fields, you know? Um, and I was just sort of shocked and it had to do with Gab and a fight between Gab and, and, uh, and start engine, I think. So uh, I'm hoping for the best. And we're, we're now talking to some other crowdfunding providers, but they these guys will have sent me back by two or three months in crowdfunding. I am not a very happy camper about them, and they could very well get sued for this. You should. But if I remember correctly, when you had that trucker's convoy, there was the one going on in Canada, you know, protesting the COVID restrictions, and then you had the American convoy. There was a couple, and Vito, remind me if I'm right or wrong, I think they were out of Florida that were aiming for conservative issues and to help the truckers. And they were accepting, you know, crowdfunding for people like yourself and like me. I'm just trying to remember who it was. It was uh, 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 a... Yeah, yeah. I think I know the company, but that's a donation. And really what I I want to do, just like you did, and and I would urge you to check on Gab, normally how these things are set up is you are in a, a pool that you don't have really a say in how the company is run. But when the company sells or goes public, uh, you get paid your dividend and, and a nice return on your money, hopefully. Uh, I'm hoping the same thing for for Tusk. Um, and, and But it's different than a donation. I, I really don't want a donation. I, you should never say that, but I really don't. I really want people to make money with me. If you put in a hundred dollars, I'm hoping, you know, it turns into a thousand dollars or a couple thousand dollars or whatever we can make happen. But it's sort of a, it's a community thing. And I, I believe you put some money in that we want to give you a nice return if it's all possible. Well, I wish you a lot of luck on that. Um, Cause I'd love to see something like you take off. Uh, I remember where Andrew started the gab. I was one of the first ones on there. Um, it took me a little bit longer to get onto Truth Social because of however they set it up. I just couldn't get on. But as soon as you know, I learned about Tusk. I was on there straight away. I, I must be on about maybe twelve different platforms. <laughs> I never remember where I'm at. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, we, we, I appreciate you being on. I hope your listeners will jump on as well. And if they go to our crowd, there is a there is a thing that says invest. Um, you know, mm-hmm. invest carefully, uh, you know, do your due diligence about us. I welcome, there's a, there's on the sign up page, there's a way to reach me personally and to have a conversation with me. I had a wonderful conversation last week from a, of all people, a judge in Indiana who was very interested in, in the raise. And we had a great conversation. And even if you just wanted to put a hundred dollars in, but you wanted to talk to the CEO, I am a total open book. Well, we get to talk to you whenever we want anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't ask me about the the, the, the uh, gun-towing wife I have, will you? That's all. (laughs) Chicken. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I am. I always announce very carefully when I come home who I am. Just in case. <laughs> Honey, I'm home. She said to me, and a couple times she said to me, I don't recognize your name. Hi, it's Jeff. I don't recognize oh. your name. No, I'm just kidding. 
pizza that <laughs> night out, isn't it? <laughs> oh, man. We're, we're so bad. We are so bad. But heaven forbid, we'll probably get canceled at Canada or, or whatever because we're talking about guns. <laughs> we're talking about China yeah, probably. and guns. Well, yeah, China and, and guns. You well, time... you know the Chinese are listening in if they can. <laughs> they're, they're definitely interested. Well, and they're why... interested in taking away your guns, too. Well, that's probably why the video feed, you know, froze on me. You know, my camera is working, but I can't do any of the feeds. They've done this to me before. I actually had my computer crash on me twice when I was talking to someone who was talking specifically about uh, the Chinese uh, genocide that was occurring. Uh, They weren't too happy with us. And each time it was the same guest. So, you know, once is a coincidence, not twice. So I'm pretty sure that they're out there listening. Well, it's, you know, the censorship is a big deal um, and the cancellation and it's the the wrong path to go down as a, as a free society. And uh, at least I'm going to try and do my little part. It's a small part to try and uh, change that. And uh, I'm hoping people will support us because the only way this is going to work is eventually you get off uh, duck, duck, uh, you come over to us. And we build this together, and, and I'm proud to be an American, and I'm proud to be a conservative. Well, I do use your web, your web browser. I have it in my uh, toolbar on my laptop, which I do 95% of my work while I'm watching TV. Yes, I can walk and shoot bubblegum at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and I also actually have it on my phone. Uh, I have it on my my. my little oh, thank you. Android or whatever, whatever phone I got, whatever this thing is. <laughs> So yes, well, I do thank use you. it. I, all I can say is thank you, and we'll just keep. We're going to keep going at it. As discouraging as last week was with this cancellation thing, I'm hoping this company will reconsider because, in you know, it's gonna it's gonna drag on for another two months. Otherwise, we could get rolling. We would have more funds to do more advertising, and we would be heading towards that search engine. I think I could be incredibly lucky with at least this prototype to show people how the web should be and not how it is today because it's not user-friendly. It's not use, well, it's user-friendly, but it's user-friendly to what they want you to see versus what you want to see. Yeah, because it's going to be cool. very interesting because uh, Elon Musk shut down Twitter today. Not, not the offices. He didn't shut down Twitter itself. And I found that when I was posting the show on Twitter, I was able to post it a lot faster Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Oh, no, oh, for sure. I mean, the fact is that he's told these kids, and and, and I have to say, um, my experience so far with this crowdfunding company is I feel like they're kids in the sandbox. That they're trying to act mature and know what they're doing, but uh, underneath this, they've learned that they're the ones that play in the sandbox, and they'll make all the decisions, and uh, and I think that's what's been was going on at Twitter. Uh, canceling people, censoring people, um, and, you know, luckily I'm a Musk fan. Luckily Musk has stepped in and he's bringing some – I mean, the kids don't even want to get out of their pajamas to come to work. <laughs> I'm sorry. When you go in to have lunch and you've got yourself a three-course meal prepared by a chef with a wine bar, what makes you think they're ever going to leave that lunchroom? Oh, I'm sorry. It's not a lunchroom. It is a restaurant. But anyway – Jeff, people can find you, find you at Tusk Browser. Do I have this correctly? TuskBrowser.com? Yes, ma'am, you do. And it's on mobile as well. So Android and iOS, same thing. 
type in Tusk Browser into those stores, and you can find us, download us, and we would love to have you on. Well, there's a link on the show page, so when people listen in the archives, they, as they're listening to the show or watching, if I can get the video working right again, uh, they just click on the link, and they can go straight there and enjoy your browser and download it on a smart device. Jeff, God bless, and thank you for the hard work you do. Thank you, guys, and thanks for uh, having me on your show. I super appreciate it. And you Thank know you, you're Jeff. always welcome back anytime. Take care, Jeff. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Check out TuskBrowser.com. Again, there's a link on the show page. And we'll bring our next victim in onto the show. Uh, he is the author of The Titan of the Senate, Orrin Hatch, and the Once and Future Golden Age of Bipartisanship William Doyle, also a Fulbright Scholar. William, welcome aboard, and I have to apologize. 99.9% of the time, I'm able to read the author's book prior to the interview, but we booked you only with a couple of days ahead of time, so I haven't had a chance, so we'll bring you back on and do a review in the book, if you don't mind. That sounds, that sounds great. Thank you very much for having me on as your next uh, victim. I look forward to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've got a guest co-host. He is a host of his own show in his own right on Global Enlightenment Radio, uh, Vito Esposito. Um, I was looking at some of the interviews that you had been doing, and um, being a child of the year, uh, I do remember Orrin Hatch and a lot of the good work he did. And at one point, we did have bipartisanship in in our government. And Ronald Reagan was very famous for that because he had Tip O'Neill as well as Orrin Hatch. And then if you remember the kitchen conversations, you know, he would sit down with Tip, both opposite sides of the spectrum, but they'd work things out. That doesn't exist. It has not existed for a long time. Well, absolutely, and I think that bipartisanship is sort of a, it's in my book, Titan of the Senate, is a biography of Orrin Hatch through his big bipartisan achievements. Uh, he is the was the longest serving Republican senator in history, which means he is the winningest conservative and the winningest Republican in American history, or at least the history of the Senate. Uh, Forty two years in the Senate. Not only, not only was he a very strong conservative, he was uh, Ronald Reagan's executor uh, throughout the 1980s in the Senate, pretty much. Ronald Reagan endorsed him in 76 when, when Reagan lost to Ford in the presidential nomination. Hatch called up Reagan and said, could you endorse me for Senate? And Reagan said, I have a feeling that Utah, which was a purple state until then, is about to become much more conservative along with the rest of the country. And he was right. He backed Hatch. Hatch got elected. And Ronald Reagan saved Hatch. Uh, he saved his re-election, his first re-election, when he flew into Salt Lake City at a big rally. And the uh, Osmond brothers, or the Osmond family, sang Battle Hymn of the Republic on live television. And the camera zoomed in on Ronald Reagan sitting next to Orrin Hatch. And Reagan looked startled and shaken and moved by the beauty of mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And the camera pulled in all the way to his face and a little tear formed in his eye and slowly went down his cheek. And 
Arn Hatch's opponent sitting at home said, I lost. I just lost this election. So Reagan was a huge force in he was a huge force in Hatch's life. But the the paradox that I explore in my book is that Arn Hatch was also the most effective co-engineer of big bipartisan initiatives during those four uh, decades. He was the most effective legislator of the post-Vietnam, post-Watergate era, and that's not according to William Doyle. It's a highly respected nonpartisan university think tank called the Center for Effective Lawmaking. So I thought, how is that possible? How do you pull that off? Because to be effective in the Senate means you have to work with liberals. You have to work with Democrats and conservatives and Republicans. So um, I spent a lot of time with Orrin Hatch before he died uh, earlier this year. He retired in 2017. And I came to the conclusion that, you know, bipartisanship often does not mean surrender and compromise and dealing with the devil. It means working with the opposition uh, sometimes screaming and hollering at them and, you know, uh, playing brinksmanship. But from that tension, which he went through a lot with Ted Kennedy, they battled and battled and hollered at each other. But the result sometimes was great bipartisan legislation, like the Americans with Disabilities Act, like um, the Ryan White HIV AIDS Act, a huge uh uh, commitment to and, and an effective federal commitment to help HIV AIDS patients and the state children's health insurance program, which Hatch took from being a liberal um, Ted Kennedy big uh, entitlement program with a big bureaucracy, and instead he reshaped the whole thing to such an extent that he had Ted Kennedy screaming in his face that he had betrayed <laughs> him, and you know. And, ha- and, you know, blowing uh, cigar smoke in his face. This is a Mormon bishop we're talking about, Orrin Hatch. And uh, <laughs> then, you know, Hatch would calm him down and say, listen, we made this better. We made it so Republicans can support it and this can get done. And that program, and Kennedy calmed down and agreed eventually, that program today helps hundreds of thousands of poor American families who are not poor enough to qualify for straight government aid and they don't earn enough money to buy health insurance. It gets those children health insurance, a wonderful program run not by the federal government but by states and by governors, very effective. So um, the point of bipartisanship is I think some of America's greatest moments, and my, my book is a history of bipartisanship too, some of our greatest moments are bipartisan and some of our worst moments are bipartisan. That's the paradox of bipartisanship. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, he was Mormon. He was also where he found his political footing when he was doing missionary work. And that's where his epiphany started to come, wasn't it? You are absolutely correct. Uh, He did his the traditional uh, Mormon missionary work, in his case, in the Midwest of the United States. And two things which seem opposite uh, happened to him simultaneously. On the one hand, and as you know, this can be very thankless work. It means putting on a tie and a little name tag and sleeping in a very, you know, uh, Spartan conditions with your fellow Mormon missionaries, going out, knocking on doors, uh, introducing yourself on the street corner and trying to get the message out to non-Mormons. And He saw two things. Number one, he saw a lot of poverty, and that sharpened his sense of Christian compassion greatly. And I think for the rest of his life, he had 
he said, yeah, we do need a safety net for those who can't help themselves, for the, for the, uh, you know, the, the neediest of the needy. But at the same time, he saw people he thought were surrendering to dependency and just kind of giving up and going on the government payroll. Um, and, and that tension also influenced his career, and it made him want to make legislation cost-effective and efficient. And, um, you know, he fought for conservative Supreme Court justices. There's, there, uh, there's no, person, uh, no person more responsible for our current Supreme Court than was Orrin Hatch for decades on the uh, Judiciary Committee. But he also was Ruth Ginsburg's biggest champion in her nomination process, according to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because he saw her as more qualified than any of the other likely candidates Bill Clinton is going to put forward. So, again, that's kind of an intellectual honesty and an open-mindedness that I think can nourish this sense of bipartisanship, uh, which, you know, bipartisanship created NATO. It created the Marshall Plan. It created civil rights legislation in this nation. It, it, it supported John Kennedy, Dick Nixon, and Ronald Reagan's arms, nuclear arms control efforts, and it um, uh, energized Orrin Hatch to sit down with Ted, people like Ted Kennedy and get big, uh, I would say call them nonpartisan, achievements through for the American people like the, uh, how about this, the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act of the mid-1990s. Orrin Hatch took this off of Chuck Schumer's desk. Chuck Schumer was a representative then, and he wrote a piece of legislation uh, called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy tweaked it around so that it could get uh, a lot of support, and it was passed, and it strengthened the government's commitment to the Constitution and religious freedom. The Supreme Court did some very unexpected things to that, but in the end, uh, state uh, Supreme Court decisions uh, supported that. And it's an example, again, of... Uh, uh, how, you know, you don't always have to be a hardcore orthodox liberal or conservative. Sometimes if you open your mind and you're creative and you're innovative enough, like Arne Hatch, um, and my, my book, Titan of, the Sen- Titan of the Senate, gets into great dramatic behind-the-scenes detail in Senate offices and cloakrooms and on the Senate floor as to how this all got done, uh, you can get great things done for the country. You can move the country not to the left or right, but forward and maybe upwards, you know, so we can inspire the world like we have so often in the past. Well, you know, in his four decades as a senator, he's had over 800 pieces of legislation passed. And he did a lot of, uh, you're you're looking at that, that's over 200 um, a year. No, I'm sorry, that's, that's, I'm doing my math wrong. It's over 20 a year, if I'm getting my math correctly, uh, which is a high number for, you know, a senator. And normally you see someone get, you know, four, five, maybe six pieces through. But that number is a phenomenal number. Well, not only that, but, you know, there's another, there's another measurement of effectiveness, not just passing laws and shaping them and influencing them. And most of those laws, I would argue, had Arn Hatch's conservative stamp on them, and he made them uh, more passable by the Congress, but also more efficient and more cost-effective in, in most cases. But there's another way of measuring effectiveness, and that's the legislation that you stand up and you stop and kill. And he did that. And this is the opening drama in my book, uh, Titan of the Senate, an extraordinary, long-forgotten but 
pivotal moment in American history when Orrin Hatch saw coming down the road a piece of legislation supported by, incredibly, a lot of American big business and Jimmy Carter and the AFL-CIO called the Labor Law Reform Act of 1978. This is his first ah. year in the Senate. And Orrin Hatch said, I was going to ask said, you about that. Minute, this, I was, I was ask because he was a big union guy yeah. to begin with. Well, this was going to expand union power, Hatch thought, beyond what he thought was the sufficient power they were given in the Roosevelt era under the, the Wagner Act and the National Labor Relations Board. He thought that's, that's all the power they need to operate freely and, and with strength, as they should, he thought. He was a union man. He worked with his hands in a union job for the first six years of his adult life. His father was a union leader in Pittsburgh, so, the, so he knew this world. But he thought, wait a second, if this law passes, uh, the Republican Party, which seemed to be dying at the time, everybody thought the Republican Party was a dead, was a dying dinosaur because after the Nixon and Ford years um, and some very bad elections for them, but uh, for the party. And um, Hatch said, wait a second, if we pass this piece of legislation, the union dues are going to be greatly expanded and they're going to go right into the Democratic Party and they're going to swamp us in all our elections. The two-party system will be dead. He thought so. He stood up a lonely voice in the Congress, and Howard Baker, the Senate uh, Republican leader, said, "Oren, don't do this. You're going to lose. You, you know that, right? You're going to lose." And he had said, "I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to pull this off." And he did a filibuster, and in a very dramatic series of maneuvers and showdowns on the Senate floor, fighting against Democratic former Ku Klux Klan chapter leader. Um, uh, Senator Byrd of West Virginia, a Democratic uh, senator, um, Orrin Hatch won, and he stopped that bill. And ever since that moment, the union movement in America has never had a uh, significant expansion of its power at the federal level. An amazing accomplishment um, for a man who thought that everyone should have the right to join a union or not join a union. <laughs> and was a union person himself. So uh, effectiveness doesn't just mean passing legislation. It can mean, well, in his case, influencing uh, judicial appointments, which he was hugely influential, and also stopping legislation. But in the end, he thought that um, America's, most of America's disagreements with each other, Americans, was, were not disagreements between good and evil. They were between good and good. Now, take abortion, for example, probably the most emotional, difficult issue, and it greatly influenced the uh, uh, elections last, last week, the midterms. Um, he tried for 42 years to get a constitutional amendment to ban abortion. He never was able to get that through, obviously. Now, he did shape the court that created the Dobbs decision, so in the end, uh, you know, that was a result of his work as well. But on abortion, there is common ground. There, there was a movement in America called the Common Ground Movement. It was sh short-lived, and it was kind of confined to St. Louis. But the leading pro-life attorney called up the leading abortion provider in St. Louis uh, one day in 1990, I think it was, 91, and said, let's sit down and see if there's anything we can agree on. And they could, they could agree on, they, they did agree, and they issued position papers, and they tried to get a movement started. It got, you know, it died, but 
They said, we can agree on adoption. We can agree on trying to help women who are in crisis uh, situations fueled by uh, finances and in an an emergency situation. We can agree on birth control. We can agree on uh, trying to reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies. And for the life of me, I've never understood why pro-life people who um, don't gain, don't grab the high ground and say, okay, let's, Let's do all of those things and push them and out-argue the other side in a sort of a visionary leadership way, because the kind of thing that Ronald Reagan used to do with different issues. Uh, I think that, the, that today we need not only bipartisanship, but we need new approaches to all these issues immediately. Last week, I did not see Republicans as a party or Democrats as a party clearly, forcefully articulate policy positions to the American people. Uh, I saw bits and pieces, but I think the first party that does that, and when it looks new and bold and innovative, you know, like Newt Gingrich's uh, contract with America from the early 1990s, that was very successful Mm -hmm. because it was clean, it was understandable, and it worked. Now, a lot of that didn't get passed, but I think we need something (laughs) like that now in the future, and we need more of a Reagan type to lead uh, both parties, quite frankly. Well, you know, if there is one out there, I, I haven't seen one yet. Um, quite honestly, um, my first presidential election, I voted for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, uh-huh. I, look at, looking at your career, I was amazed. Uh, you know, I used to live in New York. I fled it when Hillary Clinton got sworn in. <laughs> True story. <laughs> but, you know, you're award-winning. <laughs> You're an award-winning author and TV producer. You've got stuff that's up on HBO dealing with the Navy SEALs. You've got books about the PT-109 and John Kennedy. You've got on firearms. You've done that with the American sniper Chris Kyle. What made you change from those types of, of, of topics, that type of a genre, to go into this type of a biography? My first job was in the United States Senate working for conservative, capital C, conservative party, Senate, uh, U.S. Senator from New York, uh, James Buckley, Bill Buckley's brother. In fact, I'm still mm-hmm. in touch with him almost 40, I guess, 40 plus years later. And I became fascinated by the Senate and by, the, by Congress and by the uh, history of the Senate. So this book is also a very in-depth history of the Senate as a um, dramatic theater and a kind of a, uh, you know, a, um, what, what's the word, like a, a gladiatorial uh, arena of American politics. And, and, and uh, so what I love most is great stories of American history and politics. That's the common thread through much of my work for PBS, for the History Channel, for A&E, for HBO. And uh, the story of this one conservative senator who you might think you know from the Sunday morning talk shows, uh, is uh, a lot more interesting. I'll give you one quick, uh, one moment that made me want to stand up and cheer. I discovered that uh, according to disability rights activists, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, um, which affected 43 million Americans, you know, with curb cuts, closed captioning, elevator assistance, and kind of re-engineering new construction to honor their uh, citizenship, basically – that that piece of legislation, which was the biggest civil rights bill since the 1960s, never would have happened if Orrin Hatch hadn't, A, championed it through the uh, second half of its congressional life onto the Senate floor, and B, 
rescued it on the Senate floor from being killed uh, indefinitely by Jesse Helms, a fellow conservative. And the courage and the, um, the, the, uh, the, the sheer guts that Arne Hatch showed in that moment, which I get into tremendous detail in, our, in the Titan of the Senate, uh, it completely stunned me and moved me as an American. And I think American history is filled with these moments where soldiers or Marines or even politicians sometimes do great things that we can't see and they often don't get credit for. And I think that um, that's the greatest drama of all is American history. <laughs> well, it's funny because as we walk down History Lane, I do remember traveling into Manhattan with my parents at one point and meeting Jacob Javits. Back then, the ordinary citizen can just walk straight on into the office of whoever their senator or representative was. Not so anymore. Wow. That's changed a heck of a lot. If you think back that far, yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm uh, speaking to you from Helsinki, Finland, where I'm writing about the uh, Finland joining NATO in the wake of the Ukraine war. And the president here, a 72-year-old um, centrist uh, politician who's probably the most named Sauli Ninisto, who is probably the most well-respected leader in the democratic world, I would say. And the prime minister is also a 37-year-old uh, young mother named Sana Marin. Um, this country is blessed by by very, very good leaders. And Sauli Ninisto uh, flies coach, and when he goes to a book signing, this is the president of Finland. He um, when he goes to a book signing and he's late. He just sits down on the stair on the stairs, you know, and he walks his dog uh, by himself in Helsinki. Uh, so I guess that's like you walking into see Jacob Javits, which is a really funny funny image because he was he was certainly a giant of his time and probably the most liberal Republican senator outside of maybe Mark Hatfield I can think of in uh, recent American history. That's amazing. Well, I, I used to own a travel agency in New York on Long Island in Westbury, of all places. Um, and I had been to Finland, Sweden, uh, Denmark, Holland, and my late husband was Latvian. And I had the pleasure of meeting the Latvian oh. president back in the 19... 19- early 90s, shortly after Latvia had become independent. And my mother-in-law had a picture of that president's father, who was the last president of Latvia prior to losing Latvia in the Treaty of Yalta uh, to Russia. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, wow. I wow. can relate to what you're going through up there. It's beautiful, beautiful country, but it's a, right now a lot of white. <laughs> a lot of white up there. Um, I'm looking at yeah. the clock. We only have a few minutes yeah. left with you. I just want to touch on another subject that is near and dear to your heart, and that's education and the way our education system has been so twisted. Now, growing up, you and I, kids were kids. You went outside. You played. You weren't buried in your smart devices. Kids were allowed to be kids. They didn't have the indoctrination the schools are, are, going, are putting them through, much less the woke society. Um, where do you see our children going and what you're working with something um oh good lord i forgot the name of it you're working with some sort of a a a group that's trying to help bring education around and kids around well uh yeah i i um i wrote a book for oxford university press uh two years ago called let the children play it's an argument for much more recess 
and physical activity in schools because it's been wiped out by standardized testing, which was the bright idea of Ted Kennedy, George W. Bush, uh, mm-hmm. frankly, um, uh, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden. They keep wanting to kill it, and it keeps living like a beast. It doesn't work. It's destroyed American education for the last 20 years or sucked the life out of a lot of it, and that's one big problem we're facing. And it's not just – look, if there's Marxist indoctrination of, of children going on and children are being made to hate America, I say – stop it and fix that immediately. But I think we have a hundred other problems to worry about, like teacher quality, teacher retention, teacher training. There's a huge crisis going on with teachers right now. We can't get them. They're all quitting the business. Um, small class sizes. And in the end, um, you know, Finland is, it has the best public schools in the world, many people think. My child goes to one right now um, for, for the moment. Um, and one thing they do is they honor this U.S. Supreme Court, this, uh, Court's 1954 decision, um, which they're the only country I know that does this, which said not only was it a desegregation order, but it said, quote, in that decision, Brown versus Board of Education, that public education is a right, quote, which must be made available to everyone on equal terms, unquote, equal terms. That's a settled law, Supreme Court decision. Um, we don't do that in the United States. We have a hundred flavors of education. Funding is very unfair. Many of our schools are, are, are segregated. And if anybody th- thinks that there's no systemic racism in the United States, I say come to my hometown of New York City, which has the most segregated, de facto but segregated, schools in America, which under systems built by liberal Democrats largely uh, that track, separate stream and um, segregate children allegedly by, you know, um, how hard they work or how smart they are at age four and age 10. And if that, is, that isn't an obscenity, I don't know what is. So I, my point is that there are many other things to worry about in addition to wokeism and indoctrination, if that uh, upsets people, uh, that we should be working on, like play and recess and uh, respecting and training teachers correctly, which Finland does better than anybody else, even Singapore. It's a fascinating place to look at for uh, inspiration. But, you know, I, frankly, I'd put them, uh, I think New York State public school teachers, which I've seen in action you know, with working with my own son, they're probably better than any, any other group on earth too. So I guess we root for the home team sometimes. But, uh, yeah, (laughs) Let the Children Play was a a book I was delighted to uh, work on because I got to go to communist China and um, Mm. Finland and all around the world to look at how they educate their children. And uh, we all have a lot of work to do and a lot to learn from each other, I think. No, they no longer teach creative thinking. They're indoctrinated, and you have to spit it back. And I looked at some of the statistics coming out recently on the level, the, the grade level and testing level of our students. And public schools all dropped, where amazingly, Catholic schools in most areas exceeded. They did drop in a few, but not as badly as public schools. And maybe this is something that the pandemic has brought out, the deficiencies in public school, and parents are now going, wait a minute, there must be a better alternative to a failed system. And I think maybe Americans and families are waking up to that. 
Right, and you know, what do we replace it with? That's the big question, and I, I argue that we, we should replace it with a supremely, with a fairly funded, um, correctly structured and curricula um, um, system that allows for critical thinking, enhances debate and critical thinking, and frankly, that, that encourages... Oh, I think he just got cut off. Yes, Mr. Doyle was just dropped. Oh. Uh, what a shame. What a shame. All right, well, I uh, hope maybe he'll comments. call in. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I think the Democrats, you know, were listening in. They says, "Oh, they're going to butcher our alleged education system. We just may lose the teacher union in the next round of voting." <laughs> but it looks like he's trying to call back in. Let's let's see if we can bring him back in. All right, William, is this you? Hi, I'm I'm back. Sorry about that. Don't don't know what happened, That's but right. uh, I think we're, we're I was basically rent. I think yeah. Well, I think the liberals were listening to your conversation. They said, we're about ready to lose the teacher union's vote, so we let's cut this guy off. <laughs> <laughs> that is right. <laughs> Sabotage. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but, but I, think, I think that the, the teaching of American history is, is incredible, uh, incredibly interesting. And frankly, you know, I have a 15-year-old son. I, I would prefer him to learn the full truth of American history. I want him to know, not at age 7 necessarily or even age 11, but I want him to know about slavery and the horrors of slavery and the fact that our founding fathers, some of them, were slave masters, human slave masters. I want him to know about the abuse and wars upon Native Americans. But I also want him to know how the system corrects itself, how the founding fathers gave us the tools to constantly improve our country, yes. and to Thank know you. about yes. the greatness and the heroism, too. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's there's so much history that where we started from and where we are today, we are the only nation in the world that can correct its ills within itself. And I don't think any yeah. other nation has been able to advance and adapt as well as we do. And I remember busing. Yes, Camilla Harris, I actually was bused just like you. Unfortunately, I had to get my brother and sister to the bus stop before mine came, so I would walk the two miles to school because the busing sent me to a completely different school. I was able to get the bus home, but not to school. So, yes, Camilla Harris, yes. I know what busing is. I lived it. Uh, <laughs> but Wow, I see. Yeah. Well, it, it's um, it's a remarkable time. I mean, Americans have spent a lot of time hating each other and tearing each other down in social media for the last 10 years. Uh, and I think we have to wake up someday to the fact that we're not all that, we're, you know, our opponents are not demons. You know what Orrin Hatch uh, has revealed in my book, Titan of the Senate? You know what his philosophy was? According to one of his fellow senators, uh, Senator Gordon Smith of Oregon, a fellow Mormon told me what he thought the secret was, and this this is kind of the rosebud moment of my my book, uh, the big reveal. I'll give to you now without having to read the book, and that is um, that Orrin Hatch saw the nobility in his opponents, nobility in his opponents, and I thought I I can't think of any politician who has stressed the nobility of of his or her opponents, or even entertained the idea that. That the other side might be coming from a place of uh, 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 nobility or heartfelt love for America. Frankly, personally, 
I think the squad, most of them, <laughs> and Marjorie Green are equally patriotic. I, I, I will give them that. I'll assume that they are. I may totally disagree with uh, what, what they may think at a given time. But, uh, you know, in the end, I think that um, we have to look at America as a big, diverse, pluralistic, fighting, yelling sometimes uh, carnival and pageant of history. And, then, and, and it's great precisely because of that. Not despite it, <laughs> uh, and it's our job to persuade and and inspire the middle and our opponents even to look at things in a new way and look at things uh, what what we believe in passionately. I think uh, I think lately we've gotten our politicians gotten very lazy. They rely on the same cliches and the same talking points, and all they want to do is tear down the other side and not put forward their own ideas. And that's what we need in this country, I think. Well, there was at least a point in time where we were able to all sit down, have a conversation. We may not agree. We may agree to disagree. But sit down and exchange ideas. You can sit down at the dinner table or at the local bar or in the backyard, you know, barbecue picnic. You always had that crazy Uncle Al or whoever. But, hey, you still all got along no matter what. And recently I had an interaction with a neighbor. She's now moved away. Uh, and I was out there doing a support the police, you know, rally, and uh, and I'm there, and she's on the opposite side of the street doing a uh, what was it? Uh, it was not it was not a defund, but it was something similar to that. Uh, the police, and she pulled mm. one of the people over. Said, "Well, you got to talk to her." Knowing that I'm a retired NYPD, also didn't help. <laughs> kind of like, well, this is in your mm. face. <laughs> But you know, I, wow. I stood there and I listened to him, and he was talking about police reform. And having come out of the precinct that was Frank Serpico, having had my first arrest in front of the building he was shot in, which was my command, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm really high on police reform if it's done for the right reason and the correct way. And as I'm listening to this guy, mm-hmm. and I says, you know, we're both sitting on the same side of the fence, but you don't realize it. And until you can turn around and say, all right, fine, I hear you, your, your argument, and this is where I'm going to agree with you, but this is where we need to find a compromise. And I think Arn Hatch was really good at that. If he could stand there with Ted Kennedy, who was a bully to begin with, <laughs> but if he could have Ted Kennedy and face him down and say, all right, are you done now? Now, this is what we're going to do, and right. this, is, this is how I think we can make a compromise. Well, not a compromise, but a bipartisan legislation that we – get everyone to sign in on but it takes the art of listening and Aaron Hatch had that ability absolutely and respecting the fact that the other side uh, might be right sometimes and you might be wrong uh, he 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 said stupid things sometimes Aaron Hatch did according to himself not according to me although I would agree with him on several occasions and he came out and told the world he said that was stupid of me to say that about uh, LGBTQ uh, Americans, and uh, I deserve to have fault uh, assigned to me because it was stupid. Uh, he said it was it was wrong of me to oppose a uh, Martin Luther King federal holiday. That was my biggest mistake I ever made. Uh, he he said that with some regularity, but it, you know, in the end, I think these two giants of Ted Kennedy on the liberal side and Orrin Hatch on the conservative side. My goodness. If these guys who hated each other, although it was 
Hatch hating Kennedy's politics when he got to Washington. I don't think Kennedy was thinking much of Hatch until the 1980s when they had to work together. But if these two giants, and I I would argue that they are the two giants of the last half century in the Senate, if they can regularly sit down, go to each other's houses, play the piano together and make fun of each other, bad singing or bad piano playing, and hammer out big legislation and persuade many other senators to come along with them from both parties, then we can do anything in this country because the, the, the mechanics are there. That's the beauty of the Senate is the Senate doesn't change. The structure doesn't change. The people do. But I think it's our job to start sending demanding of candidates and of politicians that they stop some of the familiar uh, poisonous rhetoric that I think we're all getting very bored by and tired with and start working together and surprising us with new solutions for many of these problems. Good news, this year there were a couple of big bipartisan achievements. You may not agree with all of them, but there was, you know, there was gun safety, there was China semiconductor competitiveness legislation, there was uh, veterans care reform, a big bill that passed that I think will help veterans. There was support for NATO and uh, NATO expansion and Finland and Sweden joining NATO. There were other bills that passed that uh, Biden supported, McConnell supported, and majorities of both parties supported. And that's like the kind of thing we need more of. If some of these big problems are going to get fixed, like crime and poverty and the, bo- and the border and uh, education and a big list of things, let's, uh, you know, let's get the country moving again, as a wise politician once said. But the answer, I think, is coming back to the beginning of, of our conversation. You cited Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, and I can't think of a better example of two guys who, two people who respected each other. They hated some of each other's politics, uh, but they worked together and got things done. And that's just what Orrin Hatch did with Ted Kennedy. And look, he did it with a liberal California representative Henry Waxman in 1984 the two of them got together and said wait a minute you know what we could do we could invent the modern generic drug industry with the right legislation they did it in the Hatch-Waxman Act and ever since then you and I and the American taxpayer have saved literally trillions like with a T trillions of dollars in uh, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical expenses um, through the use of generic uh, drugs and the fact that the federal government stepped in to uh, support the growth of that industry. So, again, bipartisanship can do great things for this country, and we need a lot more. No, I remember that act, that act the Waxman-Hoyer uh, Act, for the, uh, the generic drugs. Um, I had a family of handicapped individuals, and a lot of them on Social Security, and it was a great, great help for senior citizens. The only problem is, is that when government attempts to regulate the prices, that's when they actually kill that industry, kill the generic you know, pharmaceuticals. Because once you do that, what's the point of making an investment if government's going to dictate what you can or cannot get for what you develop, what your own intellectual and physical uh, propriety has created? I mean, that is... Well, the company, that is the individuals. Yeah. And that's where they, they, they're now well, pulling it the wrong way. Well, well, that's the, uh, the weird thing about legislation. Sometimes you can have uh, completely unexpected effects. 
unintended effects. For example, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, which was, by most accounts, the Emancipation Proclamation of uh, Disabled Americans, according to uh, their leadership uh, at the time, um, but it spawned a um, uh, a lot of nuisance lawsuits by attorneys who came in to um, what, what's the word? You know, to to have lawsuits that were frivolous or predatory against smaller businesses that were supposedly violating the ADA, and that that was a big big problem that emerged in the following years that Arn Hatch tried to address and fix the legislation. And I think he, he, he largely did. But, yeah, that's, I guess, as my 15-year-old son says, uh, humans are going to human. They're going to they're gonna be human. <laughs> and uh, I, it, federal legislation can be pretty dangerous. That, that's true because um, it, it can go haywire, can't it, like, like your example. Yeah. Well, y- your best intention, someone will find the chink in the armor with your best intention, and if they can find that chink and find a way to uh, prosper from it and make a good buck, they will. And that's the unfortunate thing about human nature. There's always someone out to find the angle. And there's no way to make perfect legislation, absolutely no way. But I do know the Americans yeah. with Disabilities Act because I pulled it at my local hospital uh, when they were denying my husband and I entrance, uh, I physically can't wear a mask. And I was wheeling him in for pre-op testing, uh, which was happened to have been just about two and a half months before he passed. And because neither one were, well, I wasn't wearing a mask, they were going to deny him care. And when I got done with the hospital, within 24 hours of my letter hitting the CEO's desk and the chief surgeon, they were on the phone with me apologizing because I cited the Americans with Disabilities Act and the HIPAA Act because a security guard was asking me medical questions about myself and my husband. I says, you're not my medical wow. provider. You have no authorization to ask those questions. So, yeah, Incredible. if you know the Incredible. law and know how to use it, it can be for your benefit or to your detriment. The hospital knew I had an easy case for suing them. But, you know, I'm a nice person. Yeah. I didn't yeah. do it. But imagine an ambulance chaser could have picked up my story and said, well, hey, listen, you got yourself a nice lawsuit. How would you like a million dollars? And people will jump on that. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Well, Vito, you're well, sitting um, back there too looking, quietly. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, William. Well, well, I was just looking at what happened last week, and my, and my question is what the heck happened last week? And you know, um, I think unexpectedly, many independents uh, tilted toward Democrats. Unexpectedly, uh, many of Donald Trump's uh, supported candidates underperformed. Um, so-called election deniers or people who thought that there was cheating in the 2020 election, they underperformed. And even uh, school board candidates who were very so-called anti-woke or anti-indoctrination they kind of underperformed in school board elections. So my question is, why did why what what's the reason for this underperformance? Was it lack of a, co- a coherent message? Was it candidate quality? And I know that you know Ron DeSantis appears to be the new uh, golden boy of the Republican Party, and there's kind of a civil war or a split inside the Republican Party over the issue of uh, our former President Trump. Uh, but I, what I don't know is I don't see how President, how uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden can be strong candidates for their parties, relatively strong in in the next presidential election. I don't see how that 
could happen, either of them. I think that we're ready for new leadership, and I have nothing against 80 you know, people in their 80s if they're competent, but I think newer voices uh, might be welcomed by both parties, and that may be one of the keys to their winning the next round of elections. This is my, my personal feeling. But um, I think one thing that I think is very good is divided government that we have now, because I happen to be a moderate, and it's good for the financial markets, and it is good for politics in the sense that it forces both sides to work together more. And I think that's almost always a good thing. Well, I think the mass media has been underreporting the election because in states such as mine, South Carolina and Florida, other red states, it was a tidal wave. I mean, we swept all through, including in the county, except for mm. one tax referendum I wasn't able to fight. Uh, but basically, it was a tidal wave. And if you look at the current electoral election map as how everything turned out, there was a lot more red than there was blue. But it was in those swing states and highly concentrated urban centers, such as New York, where that's where you see the results where Lee Zeldin didn't do as well. Uh, other candidates of that mm. ilk did not do as well. Incumbents did well, but that's where I think right. the Democrats put all of their power and strength, all the money, went to keep those states as purple or as, as blue as possible. But otherwise, they said, well, that state's lost, but we can get the votes and electoral votes we need if we keep these centers. And that's the problem we have when you have... New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Detroit, heavily Democratic, D.C., uh, Maryland. These, these hubs of liberalism are what's going to control the elections unless we find a way to counter the Democratic liberal message and get those that are moderates like yourself, independents like yourself, to see the value of our message. And if we can communicate as well as the Democrats do, we'll win. If we don't, then you have a situation like Pennsylvania where Fetterman wins and Oz loses. Yes, good example. Great example. Uh, where that, that, came, that just came down to two personalities. One, I mean, both very colorful and striking personalities, shall I say. But um, th there was not a coherent message, much of a coherent message on either side that I could see. Um, and in the end, you know, the guy who somehow seemed more authentic and more Pennsylvania, regardless of his uh, of, the, of any defects he had, uh, beat the slick New Yorker coming in, you know, with a with his crudités and kind of a mixed up message. And I'm not surprised that happened, uh, really. Um, but look at New York State, uh, where which is mainly the Midwest outside of New York City, uh, mm -hmm. or, or the shall I say the South and the Midwest, and New York State gave Republicans their majority uh, in Congress, in the House of Representatives. Thank you, New York State, if you're a Republican. Uh, you know, I, I think it picked up uh, a number of uh, congressional seats that tipped the balance. And, and that's really uh, interesting as well. But I think you're right. In the end, the key to winning the next election is going to be not only seizing the independents and the moderates and the center and holding on to your base and hoping there's not going to be a third party, which I kind of doubt, uh, but out-messaging, out-thinking, out-hustling, and out-candidating the other side. Because I think there were some 
pretty bad candidates on, on both sides. But, of course, you know, competence wins out, like perceived competence. Well, DeSantis has that. Uh, the governor of Michigan, which now flipped all the way to the Democrats, seems to have that, or at least many, many voters think that. Uh, the governor of Georgia. Um, and the Trump effect is what I can't figure out what, what that's going to do to the Republican Party and to the next presidential election. I don't have a clue. I've stopped predicting things when it comes to Donald Trump. What do you think? <laughs> well, he supported 15 candidates. Out of the 15 candidates, I believe, what was the number? I believe 9-1. So more than 50% of his candidates won their seat. Um, Dick Morris was giving the numbers over on Newsmax uh, yesterday, and he said, well, we lost by X amount in, the last, in 2020, but we gained by 5,000 additional, which means it was a shift of, of 12, not 5,000, 5 million, 12 million voters shifted from voting last time Democrat to voting Republican. 12 million, that's a large shift. It wasn't enough to make it a complete red wave nationwide, but it was enough, as you said, upstate New York and other areas that are more rural American than urban American. Right. Well, you know, getting back to bipartisanship for a second, um, it's, it's the nature of the United States of America, unfortunately, to make big, bad decisions. And some of our worst decisions have been bipartisan ones. Uh, The Vietnam War was a thoroughly bipartisan disaster. Now, Dwight Eisenhower insisted on staying out of that, but it all started unraveling under uh, John Kennedy. Uh, I would argue triggered most of the momentum of that um, disaster. And, uh, you know, he was being backed up by... uh, by Nixon and all the Republicans at the same time, we thought he wasn't you know, being aggressive enough. So that was a bipartisan disaster. The, the mistakes that were made in Iraq and Afghanistan, now, of course, Biden completely botched the final pullout, but I would argue that the momentum of mistakes in Afghanistan were completely bipartisan disasters. Um, I don't think any party out-disastered the other in the, in the overall history of Afghanistan. Uh, which may have been unwinnable from the first moment. Uh, and, and similarly, in, in Iraq, they were bipartisan successes and mistakes. It was, you know, as one State Department official said about Afghanistan, everybody screwed up. Uh, and I think that's a reality we have to start facing in this country, is that sometimes uh, everyone – it's what I worry about right now with Ukraine. You know, I'm very, very strong for NATO and for Ukraine and for – not negotiating with the, with the Russians until um, Ukraine wins and gets its territory back. Uh, but I'm starting to wonder, wait a minute, am I somehow making the same mistake I made in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, supporting them with no particular qualifications or, or hesitancy? I, I, I wonder about that, but um, I think I'm probably right this time. I don't know. But, uh, you know, um, <laughs> History history is best when Republicans and, Ameri- and, and Democrats, like you said, um, stop screaming at each other, sit down, and at least listen to the other person's point, point of view. Uh, that should be happening in every beauty parlor and barbershop in America and in every neighborhood uh, because many of our neighborhoods are split very uh, distinctly between – and our families even – between Democrats and Republicans. 
but and but we shouldn't be afraid to talk about our differences, and we shouldn't be hating each other because you know cousin so and so loves Donald Trump or cousin so and so loves Joe Biden. Uh, we, we've we've got to you know love the nation, and I think that means um, honoring the founding principles of diversity and plural uh, pluralism, and this beautiful mechanism we have for expressing ourselves freely and for correcting our mistakes as we go along. That's that's what that's what'll save us in the end. I think that and better candidates and better messaging next time, regardless of what party you support. Well, I, I always say when I get into a debate with someone, especially if it's online on some some network or website or whatever, um, I always try to keep the conversation civil. But as soon as the name calling goes, it's like, wait a minute, we're having a civil conversation. If you can't be civil about this, then let's just agree to disagree and walk away. And I recently got into a, a Second Amendment debate, and this person started hurling these things at me. And quoting Noam Chomsky and other wackadoodles, and I'm going, wait a minute, and then misquoting facts. And I always go back to what Herman Cain, when you know you're fighting with the liberal and you know they're losing, the first thing they will do is name call. And then they'll switch the subject. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. First, yeah, they'll switch the subject, ignore the facts, then name call. It's S-I-N, sin. And the second you get the name calling, it's like, I know I got you then. Boom. And my final thing was I refuse to, uh, to have a battle with an unarmed person. And that's how I leave the fight after that. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 but, right. You know, well, it, you know, it, it's like the, I'm, I'm really torn on this, on what's happening in our university campuses. There's one part of oh, me that is, um, you know, I, I think, the, uh, well, in the end, I come down for absolute freedom of speech. As long as, you know, there's not overt racism or incitement to violence going on, I think we should be able to talk about pretty pretty much anything as long as we're not insulting each other. Um, and the, the university has changed radically over the last 20, 30 years, and not in a particularly good direction when it comes, when it comes to freedom of speech. You know, there's the demonization of the right. The, the demonization of professors who may have a, a fragment of you know something um, uh, of a misquote of some kind, and then they're you know they're doomed. Their career is is like over. But I respect scholarship. I respect um, um, the the university overall. And I've taught in a European university, uh, forty different nationalities. I had in one of my lecture groups here in. The, in, in Europe, and uh, one thing they all have in common is that they love the idea of people coming from America to teach them. They love the idea of America. They they are dazzled and uh, you know impressed by the idea of America, and this uh, and that's something beautiful. I think mo- many people in the world have in common is that they want to go there, they want to learn there, go to college there, and maybe even um, spend time in, in America and you know, start a career there. And I can't think of too many other countries that have that going for them, can you? <laughs> no. If you look at the European model, you, know, you grow up, uh, you're, from the day that you were born, there's a certain destiny in front of you. Your family decides, well, if your uh, father's a shoemaker, his father was a shoemaker, their father's father was a shoemaker, you're going to be a shoemaker. And it is a, a hierarchy type of society they're still in many ways somewhat feudal in their thinking 
the beauty about America is it doesn't matter to whom you're born or where you're born. You can be an utter nobody and with determination and hard work or even sheer luck, you can be the next Elon Musk. You know, that is the beauty of America. You can be born a slave and become the best statesman our nation has ever seen. You can be born in utter poverty and become the world's best surgeon and a member of the presidential cabinet. You know, the opportunities that exist here do not exist anywhere else in the world. And the only problem we have with our society today is wokeism is trying to tear that down. And the moment you open your mouth and try to be who you want to be, they're going to stifle you. And we've got to fight for the American ideal and keep that freedom of thought, freedom of the ability to strive, and freedom to speak alive. Yeah. I'm not even sure what wokeism really means anymore. I hear it so often, and I'm very unclear as to uh, what what, what it means. I I think in the end... um, you know, I make mistakes every day of my life, especially as a father. But one of the things I think I, I'm proud of doing is I was in the, a New York City public school father. Okay. I was trying constantly to maneuver my little, what, four or five-year-old at the time into the gifted and talented track, into the best uh, public school, into this, that. And every time I saw these Jew, these magnificent schools inside the public school system, I would see white children. And I would see some Asian children. And I would think, wait a minute, what the heck is going on here? I live in the most black, brown, and diverse city on planet Earth. What's going on here? So then I sent my son to a private school, which I couldn't afford too much. And then in the end, I found a school that was majority poverty, majority black and brown, great teachers in the, inside the New York City public school system. And I realized, wait a minute. This is the ultimate ultimate advantage I'm giving my son out of selfishness. Oh, we just lost William again. <laughs> well, he's calling in from from Finland, so um, we should have our next guest calling in in a few moments, which would be Robert Bork. But we'll see if he calls in again. Um, but it very very interesting interview, is it not? It certainly is. It's got a, it's got a, a different perspective, and it's, it's uh, really kind of cool. And the uh, the book itself too, with uh, Orrin Hatch, that's really uh, that's really interesting. I uh, found that to be fascinating with uh, how he he took on the uh, the subject or the topic of Orrin Hatch. Oh, I think he's back. Um, yes, we do have him back. So go ahead, Vito. Ask your question. Um, well, but, uh, William, I have a a question with regards to. Um, um, your, your book on, on Orrin Hatch. Um, who, two part question. Do you follow the Senate happenings and events today, and, and uh, do you see um, any Orrin Hatch types in the U.S. Senate today? Uh, the answer to your question is I try to, um, number one. Number two, I don't see any Orrin Hatch. You see, Orrin Hatch was a very unusual character in American history. Not only was he created by Ronald Reagan, not created by, he was nurtured and anointed by, you know, the, the son king of conservatism himself, by Ronald Reagan. But 
Orrin Hatch uh, had the luxury of never having a tough re-election campaign over 42 years in the Senate outside of his first campaign. So in the end, what I mean is you had someone with a safe seat with increasing seniority, and he became the number three or four officer of the United States government in the line of presidential succession. He became the pro, uh, president pro tem of the Senate, the senior officer uh, of, of the uh, uh, majority party. Uh, so he, uh, he had this institutional gravitas and experience uh, that was really unparalleled, at least on the uh, Republican side. So there's nobody like that. I mean, Chuck Grassley is approaching Hatch's uh, longevity. I interviewed Grassley for my book. I interviewed many uh, serving and former senators who worked with uh, Orrin Hatch. Uh, but, uh, you know, so, so it, I, it's hard to see anybody with that seniority and that power and that, that respect. But I think there are younger senators uh, from a number of states who are uh, open-minded and, you know, quiet. They're not, they haven't really seized the headlines yet. I can't give you a list of names, but they're out there who could become like Barack Obama. Barack Obama came out of no play, nowhere, um, two years in the Senate, and he became the president just by standing up and talking and by appealing to bipartisanship. That was his whole message when he ran for, pre- for president. No red, no blue, red, white, and blue. Well, if he could do it, you know, with the, as a former community organizer in Chicago and a two-year senator... I think any number of the of the current senators could do it if they channel the same uh, vibe, if they appeal to the same, you know, better angels. Now, you can argue that Obama, you know, fulfilled the promise or, or failed. But the point is that um, in answer to your question, I think, it, you know, it can be done. Uh, and I, I there, there's a part of me that hopes it's somebody I haven't heard of yet, <laughs> you know. Because the people I'm familiar with, um, I'm already getting kind of tired of because I know what they're going to say. I know what they're going to think. And it's not creative and big and bold and original and innovative enough for me, I think, and for a lot of Americans, uh, potentially. So I hope that answers some of your question. Well, you know, I... I, Oh, I'm sorry, Vito. What I had mentioned before to you, Vito, no. and a previous guest, to me, the ideal ticket is Trump. You still get the Trump supporters, the Trump crowd, but take Ron DeSantis as the VP. It gives him four years to get a flavor in the field of the office and help and learn to bring the entire country, not just the state, the entire country in the right direction. And then once Trump leaves after four years, we can have eight years of Ron DeSantis. I think that would be the perfect ticket. I think that's a great idea, but I think they hate each other. I don't think they, they want to have anything to do with each other. I don't think I don't think DeSantis uh, thinks he needs Trump at all. I think DeSantis thinks Trump's history and uh, you know the, the cliche, the, the knee-jerk headlines of the last week would lead you to believe that Trump is a wounded political force. But I'm not going to count him out him out for anything. I think you know that. Uh, he's very volatile, unpredictable, and uh, I don't know how long the DeSantis effect lasts. It could last till next week, or we could, you know, have him for the next twenty years in the presidency and the Senate. Who knows? 
<laughs> we'll, we'll never know. But it, it, it's great to have you on. Again, I have to have you back after I read the book. I'm pulling a lot of stuff, you know, I remember from Orrin Hatch out of the back of my memory. I So I had to part the gray hairs <laughs> to pull it out. <laughs> but I hope I was a worthy interviewer. <laughs> Fantastic. Great talking to you. I could have talked to you all day, but uh, it's great to speak to a New York, former New York City police officer and, and a police uh, employee and, and, and fellow New Yorker. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. Well, God bless you and uh, keep up the good work and good luck with your son over there and uh, the new work that you're doing over there in Finland. Terrific. Thanks so much. All right, Take check care. out William Doyle. His book is up on Amazon. It's called Titan of the Senate, Orrin Hatch, and the Once and Future Golden Age of Bipartisanship. Oh, if we could ever have bipartisanship. We're waiting for Robert Bork Jr. to call in. Uh, he is our next guest in the bullpen. Uh, so we have, oh, my God, I had put some other stuff aside here for us to discuss while we're waiting for our next guest. And let me just see if I can find Oh, I am just so disorganized here right now, Vita. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> you know, there's a, <laughs> a three-hour sleep does not quite do it, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, there's a new bill that's being pushed on the on the floor, pushing for the same-sex marriage. And um, we had that ruling a while back from the Supreme Court, where it defined marriage. And I don't know if you remember, I talked about this when they had the ruling back then. I said the Supreme Court got it 100% wrong. They just violated the First Amendment. Government, or specifically Congress in the First Amendment, cannot create or define a religion. That's up to the religion to define what, what their parameters are. Government does not cannot form a religion. By defining marriage, by creating a, defining what a religious right is, because marriage is a, a religious right in all sense and purposes, by defining that right, they defined religions. So now a religion believes marriage is one man, one woman, or another liberal religion may say, well, anything goes. You can marry the tree if you like. That's that religion. Government has no right to define what a marriage is. Government's purpose is to recognize a civil union. When you get a marriage license, by law, that is a civil union document. It is a contract between the two individuals in an agreement in a domestic situation, a civil union. You go to a church, a temple, a mosque, or out in the middle of the ocean, who cares? And some religious figure does the mea copa, mea copa, does a mea copa over you, <laughs> like your, your, your priest did to you. <laughs> um, that takes that civil union and now creates that civil union in the eyes of faith, a marriage. So when the Supreme Court defined marriage, they created religion. And that's where they got it wrong. So now Congress is running away with this, attempting to pass a bill recognizing same-sex marriage, federally recognizing it. Well, I'm sorry. If you go to, say, Tennessee and you go to the county clerk in a highly red district that doesn't recognize 
same-sex marriage, but does recognize a domestic union, well, why would you force that on that clerk, right? You're here for a domestic license, fine. But um, clerk of the court and I have the notary power to marry you, I'm not going to marry you. You're, you're, You're violating what we recognize. This is a civil document. That civil document can be taken anywhere throughout the United States in the right of inheritance, uh, child custody, whatever. That civil document is your legal document to protect your relationship or the split of your relationship and your assets, your family, whatever. So here again, they're getting it wrong. But what they're going to do... They're going to marginalize and oppress anyone who believes in traditional marriage, that of one man, one woman. Heaven forbid you go against it. They'll get canceled. They'll get thrown off social media. They'll even be fired from their jobs. And how many years before a Christian minister who speaks out of marriage and sexual orientation is reported to government as anti-terrorism? Oh, wait a minute. Didn't we just recently hear about that? A pastor that got fired for speaking out about what his faith and he believes to be marriage in his religious faith? It's already happening. It is. And you know what? What's really sad in this whole thing, it's that it seems like it's that Marxist movement that wants to uh, erase and take out, uh, and I'll use Christianity to take out religion from from the very basis of our foundation, and, and it's the Democrat Party that's leading the charge, and it's the progressive movement, it's the Marxist movement that seems to be doubling down, and, and they're going to criminalize. They're going to criminalize your religious belief. That's, uh, how, how, do you, how do you criminalize the Catholic Church? If the Catholic Church's belief system has been the same for the last you know, 2,000 years, you're going to suddenly... You know, you as a government are going to erase that because of your um, your political, you know, anti-Christian belief system. I well, I, I really see Vito, this being a, a challenge. Well, Vito, it looks like I may have to call our guest in. So you take over for the next few minutes while I try to get Robert Bork Jr. in. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. I, I think to expand a little bit further on on, on what. Um, what Annie said, that the, the issue of uh, religious belief, the, the intolerance by, um, by government today to, to uh, demonize Christianity, to demonize religious belief, I mean, I, and speech. I mean, all five components of the, uh, the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, um, have been abridged by, by government, and they continue to do so. I mean, the uh, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. Uh, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, press, or the right of the people to peaceably assemble, and to petition the government for redress of grievances. And all those components seem to have been abridged by, uh, by this government, not to mention people's rights to the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, and, of course, the Tenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Just, it's, it's truly amazing what we, what we are seeing right before our eyes. Oops. You have you're uh, you're live, Eddie. <laughs> Two. 
you're calling live, Andy. Um, some troubling news today out of uh, out of. Um, this is Robert Bork. I'm sorry that I'm unable to pick up the phone at the moment, but if you leave a message, I will call you back as quickly as I can. Thank you. Uh, 326 dead, 15,000 arrested. Security forces open fire on protesters in Tehran Metro Station. That is really and truly troubling. And uh, I, if you want to read the story, you can go to uh, Jihad Watch. But it appears that the uh, the situation in Iran escalated once again on Wednesday as security forces opened fire on protesters in a metro station in Tehran. Videos and pictures share a social media show that forces attacked the protesters who had gathered to protest against the custodial death of a 22-year-old Masa Amini, and they even beat up a woman who was not wearing a mandatory head covering in public. Um, I believe that the uh, the United States government, who is engaged in 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 uh, the uh, the United States government, who's engaged in uh, negotiating with Iran with a new Iran deal really needs to pull back on this and, and actually walk off the table. This should not be tolerated. Um, this is very, very troubling uh, what's happening, and not that we, we should be surprised by the theocratic Islamic regime's intolerance of, of others. So, uh, Annie, are you back? Yes, I am, and I have our next guest. And I have to apologize because we've been having problems with our switchboards acting up a little bit. We have Robert Bork Jr., who is the president of the Antitrust Education Project, and he also heads the Bork Group, a public affairs agency. Good afternoon, Mr. Bork, and I apologize for the technical difficulties we've been having. Did I unmute him? No. Oh, good. No. See, see, this oh. is what happens. Everything, anything that can go wrong does go wrong today. Good afternoon, Mr. Bork. Welcome to my world of insanity. Well, sounds very familiar, very similar to mine. So let's talk. <laughs> um, we had on a guest earlier. We were talking about um, breaking up of the social media because of the wokeness, cancel culture, and everything else. And Congress has been trying to tweak how social media uh, uh, is operated, whether or not it's going to be under the auspices of the FCC. Basically, what they're trying to do is an antitrust package on them. Is this good or is this bad for us as Americans in free speech? Well, that's a very complicated question. And, but let me give you the uncomplicated short answer. Using antitrust, to solve the problem of censorship is a huge mistake. Antitrust was not designed for that, but it's very, very popular with uh, liberal Democrats and some conservatives because it's such a club. It's, it is, you know, you can, you can just pummel these companies with it, uh, you know, breaking them up, threatening to break them up, uh, threatening them with triple damages, all sorts of things. But it's really not what it was designed for. Antitrust was designed to encourage economic efficiency and the benefit and, and the benefit uh, or welfare benefits to consumers. Um, now there are some people who say, well, it should be used for that, but it really, it's just totally inappropriate. What is appropriate? And I don't disagree that there's a problem with censorship. Uh, and I think actually some liberals would tell you that they get censored too. 
but uh, we as conservatives feel it more than they seem to. Uh, the, the thing to do about that is to tweak or modify this uh, code called Section 230 and uh, make it possible for you and I to have recourse when we get censored. Uh, and first of all, to try to limit that censorship uh, and to make it, uh, you know, more transparent process. Um, but Antitrust is just not designed to do that. It never was meant to do that, and and uh, it, but people love it. Politicians love it because they, what they really want to do is have more control over uh, everything, over business and the economy. And antitrust is a way to do that, um, yeah, but it's the wrong way for this problem. Well, you know, um, a lot of people say the antitrust law is old. It's outdated. The big time of the Vanderbilt monopolies and everything is gone. Um, but is antitrust law outdated? It Does it suit our modern times? Can it be used creatively? And how so? Well, uh, you know, you're right. The antitrust laws come from a time when uh, business was organized in trusts. That's why it's called antitrust. A better way to think about it now is competition law and those laws were old and vague and outdated uh, and my father judge bork actually then professor bork uh, wrote a book called the antitrust paradox which pointed out this problem with antitrust law that it that nobody seemed to understand what it was for and how to and how to use it and and that the courts particularly justice lewis brandeis and justice uh, william o douglas we're just making it up uh, on the court. And so, but what they ended up doing is uh, uh, protecting inefficient competitors, uh, inefficient businesses, uh, and not benefiting the consumer. And so he did all this calculus and economics and wrote in his book, uh, which came out in 1978, why the focus of antitrust law really should be and really he thought was uh, the consumer, the consumer welfare. And the book came out in 1978. Uh, in 1979, somebody cited it in a Supreme Court uh, argument, and the Supreme Court adopted the consumer welfare standard, and it has been the sort of operating system for antitrust enforcement for the last 43 years. So 43 years may seem like a lot of time to you <laughs> and to me, but it's, uh, this, is, this is a fairly young uh, you know, revision, reinterpretation of antitrust law that has had enormous economic and social benefits for this country. It has helped, uh, you know, create innovation and job creation and wealth, uh, and uh, not all by itself. But it, you know, it's about freedom, and it's about and it's a it's a, a neutral principle. It doesn't uh, favor any uh, any sector of the economy. Now, some people would say, well, you know, the, all the big big tech companies are the beneficiaries of this system. And they've gotten big because of it. And I wouldn't argue that they have gotten big, but I would also, but I would argue that much of their bigness is not a problem. You know, it's not illegal to be big. You may resent them for being big, uh, but it's also not illegal. And this this shocks people when I say this sometimes. It's not illegal to have a monopoly. It's how you got it and what you do with it that that, that could be problematic under the law. So. Um, you have to define the market you're talking about, 
and and uh, and then look to see if they're using their monopoly power uh, unfairly. Well, you know, a lot of people look at examples such as Walmart. And they have cornered a huge niche in American society and the economic marketplace. And you hear all the time, and I live in not exactly a small town, but we are a tourist area. You have a lot of these little mom and pop and curio shops, and everyone's going, well, they're going to all shut down when Walmart opens up another store. But I don't think that's true because Walmart caters to a certain niche. Those are the lower economic scale. Whereas if you want, you know, the bigger items, you're going to go to one of the larger stores that have the more fancier and more expensive items. Or you'll go downtown to the restaurant or the boutique that's downtown and buy the more prices. It'll always be there for the high-end purchasers, the tourists. Whereas Walmart does help a certain niche of our society. And this is where antitrust gets it wrong. Am I correct? Um, I agree that um, with you that the uh, small business, mom and pops, uh, are in some ways the beneficiary of all of this new technology, all of this online selling, and um, and also uh, you know they they benefit in some ways because of Walmart. Um, you know, they, some of these small companies may buy things from Walmart that they use to make their products or. It depends what we're talking about. But, you know, it's a funny thing you should mention that because my grandmother, my father's mother, uh, rest in peace, um, who lived to be 105, used to complain that about the, the corner grocery store going out of business. And we said, well, what, where do you shop? And she said, well, she goes down to the Safeway, you know. Okay, well, because why? Because they were more efficient, because she had more choices, because she had better prices and fresher, fresher uh, you know, vegetables and meats and fish and stuff there than she could get at the corner store. But, you, but, but of course, what you lack sometimes is the relationship with, the, you, know, the, the, um, you know, the guy behind the counter. Uh, and, and, and that stuff is the kind of thing that we lose. But is it worth, you know, uh, breaking up Walmart or, uh, or any of the other big box stores uh, to, to try to reclaim that. And you want to you want to pay more and have less convenience. I mean, my goodness, we we buy, and maybe this is the nature of our the way we live. We live in a in a community about seven or eight miles from uh, the, the nearest uh, you know Seven Eleven, and so and if we want to order something, if we want something, we need something for the house. We go on Amazon or we go we we go on Walmart. A web page or Lowe's or something and, and have it delivered. Um, and so I think there are many benefits to this, this, this size, uh, you know, the bigness uh, of these companies that they can get stuff to you. They have the, they have the, the wealth uh, and the, uh, you know, size to, to operate in a way to get you things quickly and less expensively. Well, you have uh, areas such as Amazon that allow the small boutiques to also sell online and be in competition with the, the other big box stores. Uh, so yes. there's a new dynamic that the old antitrust laws are being subverted to, I guess, I, what are they trying to do, just help the little guy and crack up big business? What is their purpose, and why do they want to subvert it 
from what the good it's doing. I'm not sure I understand the question exactly. Are you saying that the antitrust laws want to break up these these big Amazon type no, the, operations? Or? The, the, the actual law itself, as you write in in some of your stuff on your webpage, is now using to stifle big business and innovation. They're actually oh, yes. turning it on its head to do the exact opposite than what it was originally intended yes, to do. That, well, that's that's true. So yes, what's what's happening? Uh, this makes me uh, kind of get grumpy when I think about it now. Uh, you know, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm a nice person. Don't get well, mad at no, me. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. I spent, I, you know, I spent enough time trying to figure out what these people are up to, and I don't think they know. Um, you know, Amy Klobuchar, members of Congress. Uh, you know, they're passing. They're trying to get these laws passed, which they can't because they don't make any sense. Uh, that would, uh, you know, uh, put sort of hamstring or put handcuffs on. Uh, some of these uh, big uh, online operations like Amazon and uh, Google and others, um, and uh, ultimately, uh, you know, turn our private uh, data over to the Chinese. Uh, that's in the law, uh, and uh, the one they're trying to pass, which they haven't been able to. And, and so, they just—I think there's just an enormous amount of resentment against anything big. And in some ways, they resent big enterprises that challenge the government, that challenge the federal government. And so they want to, they want to control it. You know, what did Ronald Reagan used to say about uh, if, it's, uh, if it's successful, tax it. If it, keep, if it keeps moving, uh, somebody, you know, break it up. So uh, that's, what, that's what Congress wants to do. They just don't like any – they don't like things that are successful and big and independent and, and supporting your free choices. Uh, so I, I, would just, I would just say that's, that's the big problem right now, is that this government, the Biden administration, in particular the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department, are all trying to solve problems that don't exist. Um, but occasionally they stumble over something that needs to be looked at, like this Ticketmaster situation. With, uh, not that I... Uh, spend much time following Taylor Swift, um, but you know, but, uh, but you know, the Ticketmaster apparently has got a problem with the antitrust people now because of the way they've mishandled her ticket sales for her new tour. Now I don't know if that's really an antitrust problem or not. It may just be that they screwed up uh, and they couldn't handle 20 million ticket requests in the day. Um, but yeah, I think there are some issues that need to be looked at. And there are always issues that need to be looked at. The question is whether or not you really are going to go forward with trying to stop them. If, if I may just continue for a second, the, if there is this, there, there's this Facebook thing. Facebook or Meta tried, tried to buy a virtual reality company that makes virtual reality exercise stuff, like a, you know, a virtual reality headset. And um, so you would use in exercising, and it's got programs that go with it. Uh, and they spent a whopping $400 million to do it. Yeah, $400 million these days, it sounds like a lot to you and me, but in, 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 in mergers and acquisitions, it's like lunch money. And so they, they did, this is a small company. They want to get into this area. There, there, there is no monopoly power there, uh, but the FTC uh, 
immediately filed an injunction to stop them because they might ultimately have uh, you know, a monopoly. Not now, but sometime in the future. Uh, you know, remember that movie Minority Report with uh, uh, Tom Cruise, where they, they, were, they were running around trying to stop crimes before they happened, pre-crime. Well, that's, the FTC now is running around trying to stop crimes that they, they perceive may happen some years in the future, uh, and so they don't want to allow Facebook to buy this little company. But what's happened, of course, is this reveals actually something that we all should be aware of. The, the nature of venture capital in this country today really is, has changed. There are venture capital companies that invest and bring small companies public and all that and help them grow. But a lot of that's happening from these mega you know, companies like Amazon or Google or Meta and others that, uh, and Walmart and others that go out and buy companies and then make them stronger, bigger, and better. And, uh, you know, that's the way it is. That's, that's part of the strategy of starting a startup these days is hopefully to be bought out by one of these other companies. So, and then, you know, people like that, people who get bought out are people like Elon Musk who go out and start SpaceX and other things with the money they got from those sales. Well, this is what you're talking about, the Digital Markets Act? I'm sorry, the Digital Markets Act? What about it? Yes, that's what you were – is that part Uh, of what you're talking about? Yeah, part of what I'm talking about, yes. Um, So, um, again, what's being proposed and has been proposed and is going nowhere in Congress right now are a bunch of laws that – solve problems that don't exist or would make things worse. Um, they would actually stifle competition, not enhance it, um, and have side effects like making our personal data available to competitors. Uh, you know, Amazon would have to give uh, your personal data to any company that wants it. They would have to give their proprietary back-end software, uh, give access to that to competitors some of whom would be uh, companies that are owned by the Chinese communists, you know, um, Chinese competitors that are actually owned by the Red Army or the Communist Party. So these people just aren't thinking very clearly about what needs to be done. They're not focusing on actual relevant markets that where they could have a, where they could actually solve a problem and have a benefit. They just don't like big. They're, they're, they're swinging for the fence, and that's the really <laughs> problem. Well, Robert, I wish we had more time because I got my final guest from Heritage in on the line with us. I'm going to bring him oh. on shortly. I apologize for the technical difficulties. We definitely have to have you come back on because I dearly loved your dad, and I was sorry to see what happened. I watched those uh, hearings, and it broke my heart. And that man's a strong man, and he raised an equally strong son who is following Thanks. in his footsteps. God bless you for the hard work you do, sir. Thank you very much. I enjoyed being on and love to come back. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Robert. All right, check out, check out Robert Bork. He is the president of the Antitrust Education Group. There's a link on the show page. You can click on it to go to his website as well as the Bork Group. Our final victim of the day, our, one of our favorites here outside of Hans von Spakowski, Jonathan Butcher. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm well, thank you. Great to be with you. 
Yeah, and you got a job for another year here, a little while longer, because McMaster's just got reelected. Congratulations. <laughs> well, congratulations <laughs> to uh, the governor, and and uh, we are excited. I think for you know the policies that he uh, tried to move through during COVID to create more options for families in South Carolina, I think was a great first step. And and I think that state you know lawmakers really should be looking at the momentum that school choice has had over the past year. And, um, and, and I think that families in South Carolina are, they are primed and ready, I think, for, for more learning options. And, you know, I think it's exciting to see um, what may be happening now with the State Department of Education. I think, um, uh, I think, you know, again, the policies that we hope to be seeing from the state agency should be, uh, uh, should be a, a welcome, uh, a welcome boost to families who really, you know, watch the results from NAEP and the nation's report card and uh, the increase in D's and F's in cities around mm-hmm. South Carolina coming out of COVID. Um, you know, we're, we need some, some very family-focused, student-focused policies right now. Well, Ellen Weaver just got elected uh, as our, our uh, superintendent of education. Uh, she was endorsed by a friend of mine, Sherry Few, <clears throat> so I'm sure you're familiar with those. Um, so we're looking for some good things to happen here with education in South Carolina. And um, we have – did we pass the education uh, uh, savings accounts? Did we do that? Well, I'm thinking un- – Unfortunately, the bill uh, – so the proposal was uh, passed by uh, both of the chambers, and then because there were differences between the two proposals, you know, the rule is that it goes to conference committee and – in a very bizarre twist, the conference committee was unable to come to a consensus, and so the whole thing died, which was really a great disappointment. Um, I think that there were some very courageous South Carolina lawmakers that, that really advocated for families and advocated for students all during the session, and to see the leadership, I think, fail them was a real disappointment. Yeah, because uh, I had... Uh... Oh, Sherry, not you, uh, Shannon Erickson is my representative, and I know that she was she was really ticked off that that was uh, uh, that did not make it because the dollars should follow the child. The child should not follow the dollars. And if a parent finds that your their kid is in a failing school, they should be able to yank that kid out and take them to the school of their choice. I mean, why would I want my tax dollars to go into a failing school when I can have my child go to a school that's successful? for the same amount of money. It makes no sense. Well, and today the conversation around education in the U.S. is, is about what you just described. I mean, I think, look, Arizona just adopted a policy this year that says any child, public school, private school, home school, who wants to use an education savings account, which allows them to choose private school tuition, um, online classes, curriculum, textbooks, personal tutors, education therapists. They can choose all these different things. So any child in Arizona can do that. And then West Virginia has a, a proposal that is very similar. Um, look, North Carolina has an education savings account program for children with special needs. Uh, Florida has an education savings account program. I mean, Arizona is really, um, I'm afraid, just um, uh, several years behind, frankly, which is uh, really too bad uh, when it comes to quality private school and w- not just private school, but private learning, uh, private learning options, making those available. So uh, I think that um, you know, Arizona. I'm sorry, South Carolina has made small 
you know, efforts in this direction. You know, we have a tax credit scholarship program, although that's rather small. Um, I think our, our charter school sector is uh, increasingly becoming more and more um, healthy, I think, well-run, more options, um, great leadership uh, at, uh, you know, among the authorizers. So, you know, I, I think that this is, um, it's, it's simply, you know, it's, it's just a matter of, of time, and it's, it's a shame that it's taking so long because every year that goes by without um, adopting a great option like this, you know, more kids are going to fall through the cracks. Well, you mentioned earlier the GPA's grade point average uh, that has dropped, and you wrote an article in Heritage at heritage.org uh, about a school in Baltimore where a student with a .13 GPA. Now, what's the top level for a GPA so people can understand it and the bottom level? So you can understand what well, it's considering. Gen- yeah, sure. I mean, generally, right? I mean, a GPA is out of about four points. I mean, I think that with AP classes and honors, students can get above a four and um, but, you know, usually we're talking about something on a four-point scale. The example from Baltimore was so appalling because it just demonstrated that these kids had just been passed on from year to year without having to demonstrate, you know, proficiency or that they had learned anything. And so that, I mean, that was really nothing short of a, I mean, it's a tragedy, right? I mean, these kids' lives are being wasted, frankly, by educators who are just moving them along. Um, and that's, I mean, that's just sad. And uh, I think in uh, it doesn't matter what state you're in, South Carolina or anywhere else. I mean, I think that the focus on the needs of a child um, uh, has to be what's driving policy right now. And, and I think what's changed coming out of COVID is that not only are parents and lawmakers talking about school choice, not only are they talking about, you know, what's going on in West Virginia and Florida and Arizona. And, um, I mean, look, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has said, that he wants a um, a proposal to expand school choice in Texas next year. Uh, Iowa governor uh, has said the same thing, right? So not only are lawmakers talking about it, um, but parents are demanding a seat at the table. They have been uh, active at school board meetings. They have been speaking up in such a way and in, with uh, such consistency and, and so you know with such strength that teachers unions and school board associations have you know, they've called on um, their radical allies, you know, at the White House and and elsewhere in the federal government to effectively intimidate them and to intimidate parents from not speaking out. So, I mean, this is a a shift here, right, where families uh, are not only speaking up, but they're doing it with uh, in such numbers and with such powerful arguments about why the learning loss coming out of COVID is going to set kids back for years. It's going to set them back for decades if, um, you know, if we don't act immediately. I mean, we should have acted this. The education savings account proposal in, in South Carolina and, and any other state, right, is is years too late. You know, it's years too late. But this, the faster that, you know, we provide these options for students, I think the faster we can make up for lost time. Yeah, not only do, are they falling in grade point average, failing in basic subjects as reading and writing, um, they're also losing social skills, unable to interact with their fellow students, much less with the adults around them. Uh, there is a, and that also correlates to their ability to learn. And there's a whole number of factors that rolled into one 
And it's like an uphill battle we're facing at this point. Well, and the evidence from uh, groups that study depression and uh, incidents of student of, of suicide among young people, um, and even you know pediatricians associations, they all said coming out of COVID that it's a crisis. It's a crisis right now of young people who are um, either suicidal or showing uh, suicidal. Um, uh, te- you know, uh, uh, evidence that, that they are trending toward that, right, or that they're exhibiting um, uh, factors, right, that coincide with um, suicide as well as depression. So the mental health of young people right now is, is, a, is a very serious issue. Um, and I think the most dangerous thing that we can do, given the results of low test scores and evidence of um, uh, either suicide or uh, depression, is uh, business as usual, right? I mean, I think the worst thing we can do is say, well, we're just going to get, you know, kids back to class and just sort of hope everything goes okay. And the reason is that the public school system has never been able to close achievement gaps. It has, it has never done a good job at bringing students from disadvantaged backgrounds up to higher uh, achievement levels. Now, some, in some subjects, right, so we'll take math in particular, over the years, the average math score on the nation's report card, we have seen improvement. I mean, there was a period, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, where there was some noticeable improvement in the average score, but that has long since tapered off and even gone back down now uh, coming out of COVID. Um, but even though the average score has gone up, that does not mean that the achievement gap between white students and black students got smaller. It did not the achievement gap between um, not just white students and minority students, but between students at different ends of the income scale, so at different percentiles of uh, the income scale, the gap between, you know, those students, that has not improved uh, in some 50 years, right, of test score data. So, um, you know, we, we cannot ask a system that has never been able to accomplish this goal of uh, bringing students um, you know, up to a, a high level of, of achievement and just say, well, now we're going to expect things to be different because uh, there's no evidence that the assigned school system is changing their policies. Now, I'm going to ask you a question because as I was reading this article you wrote in Heritage about getting and spending waste, <clears throat> um, there's federal dollars tied to each student. And if they don't achieve a certain level of education, uh, the federal dollars sort to start to melt away. In the case of this one kid you write about in here, um, he had finished four years of high school, and then the district officials decided to bring him back to the ninth grade. So every student in that seat is more federal dollars to that school system. So does it behoove the school system to help these children uh, achieve a higher goal to graduate with a great GP, uh, GPA average? Or does it behoove them to leave them behind and have more kids left behind to get more federal dollars into the school? I'm wondering if that's playing a role into what's happening with kids on top of COVID, on top of the failed education and poor teachers. Is that a factor, do you think? Well, I don't think that the public school system is uh, intentionally not graduating students because when they show higher graduation rates, it makes them look better. So I think when, you know, as graduation rate goes up, graduation rates go up, 
um, that makes you know high schools more desirable and that attracts more students. I think that's that's usually you know the way that that algorithm you know plays out at the at the school district and and even state level. Uh, I think when it comes to money, the issue is that now public schools have gotten billions billions in new federal spending over the uh, the COVID years and uh, a, a significant percentage. I mean, we're talking 120, 140 billion out of perhaps 190, 200 billion dollars has not been spent. I mean, this is money that they started dispersing in, you know, at the very on the very edge of the pandemic, right? I mean, two some two and a half years ago, and so um, now that this money has been rolling out, districts haven't been spending it. And um, as we, you know, that's why what I was saying before about how we can't simply assume that the public school system is going to um, be able to raise student achievement and close achievement gaps when they haven't been doing so forever because they're not doing anything different, right? Um, It is the evidence right now anyway, what early evidence we have, points to the idea that school districts are hiring more staff. Uh, They're hiring perhaps even more non-instructional staff. And, um, you know, that is not going to improve, the, you know, the student outcomes. It's not helping students uh, become more effective in the classroom. It doesn't necessarily make teachers more effective in the classroom. So uh, to have districts sitting on money right now is not what taxpayers should be, uh, want to see. And, and we should hold schools accountable for that. Because mm. yeah, a recent study that was in Education Week uh, stated that schools would need, and I found this amazing, $700 billion in additional money to help students get back to where they were pre-COVID. However, you mentioned about funds not spent, uh, that have, schools have more, uh, teeth are in backwards, have two more years to spend an additional $200 billion. So this money is just laying there, not being spent or allocated as it should be, and yet we still need an additional $700 billion to get our kids up to snuff. And it doesn't look like that money is coming from anywhere. I mean, how much more are you going to tax the, the individual uh, for something the government screwed up? Well, and I think the suggestion that if we just added more money, um, especially to that degree, that we could say, well, then we'll get students back where they, uh, uh, you know, where they should be on grade level, I I don't, the evidence doesn't point to that, right? There is no evidence that just by adding money to the school system that that will automatically improve test scores. And it always matters what is done uh, with those resources. And, again, this is why it goes back to, you know, the uh, number of administrators that school systems have hired over the past 20, 25 years in particular. I mean, there's serious administrative bloat in the public school system. The ratio of instructional staff to non-instructional staff is about one-to-one in the public school system. Um, So, you know, the idea that if we gave schools more money, they somehow would be able to unlock some magical um, intervention that would bring kids up to speed is, I mean, that's simply nonsense, right? It matters more what uh, the way that schools use money. It matters more that parents can choose to move their child to a different situation when whatever existing classroom they're in is not meeting their needs. I mean, that's, those are the kinds of things, right, that are going to change, um, uh, change the direction of a child's educational career. Um, and that, you know, that's why when I was talking earlier about uh, the importance of the health of the charter school sector in South Carolina, it's very important. I think the more options that we can give families 
the better. I, I think that the innovators that are creating schools specifically for children from disadvantaged backgrounds, specifically to help children who have been uh, assigned to failing schools for a long time, uh, focusing even on language immersion, right, where they teach the classes in not just English but in another language as well to help students uh, gain proficiency in a foreign language, uh, focus on, say, math and engineering in one school, a uh, focus on arts in another. I mean, all of these different things help parents who are trying to identify what their children need and where their children are going to be successful. So, um, you know, all of this is part of a, a multi-step, I think, answer to the problems that were caused by a school district that, frankly, um, failed children, right, coming out of the COVID-19, during and coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, you're right about, I'm looking at the clock, we've got only 10 minutes left. Uh, you're right about uh, the shout-downs, the new craze that we have, which occurred under the Obama administration, if you remember, out in uh, Berkeley, California. I think that was the wave that hit the nation, where it's now fashionable that if a conservative speaker or someone you disagree with appears on campus, they are threatened to the point where they feel their life is in danger. A perfect example is recently University of uh, New Mexico with Tommy Lyron, uh, where she actually felt the walls and the doors shaking and was in fear and had to be escorted by police in order to safely get off campus. Whatever happened to free speech? Whatever happened to tolerance and acceptance? Well, the, all of this points back to critical race theory. I mean, as I explained in my book, uh, Splintered Critical Race Theory and the Progressive War on Truth, when you look at what happened around about 2015, there began to be this wave of demands, letters from student groups uh, encouraged by faculty, sometimes signed by faculty as well, demanding that universities hire more uh, employees or professors who, of color or demanding diversity, equity, and inclusion programs on campus or demanding additional benefits for students just based on the color of their skin. All of these things uh, started at about the same time that this latest wave of shout-downs and censorship on campus uh, began to hit the headlines. And so uh, I think that the students who are shouting down professors who are shouting down and invited speakers, they're parroting the same language that critical race theorists have used for years, right? They use terms like intersectionality, decolonization, microaggression, safe spaces, all of these things. I mean, if you look online at the YouTube videos of the shoutdown, I mean, really, I mean, the University of Arizona, at Berkeley, like you said, at Middlebury, up in Vermont, I mean, all of these examples, it's very easy to see students simply living out what they've been taught, right? They've been immersed in an educational environment focused on victimhood, focused on um, very uh, self-centered um, lessons about uh, identity politics, and uh, they are you know, when they see an idea that they disagree with, they don't have the intellectual or um, emotional, frankly, maturity to, uh, to debate it, to meet ideas with ideas, and instead they'll try to use violence and intimidation to silence anyone with whom they disagree. 
It's a shame. I mean, we saw some of the starting back in the 19th century, several decades probably before you were born. But I remember uh, challenging professors in college, and it was okay to do that. But now the idea is that you're spoon-fed and you must parrot back exactly what the professor says. There's no exchange of ideas, no uh, critical thinking. Uh, you, you have a herd mentality, and unfortunately this is what our youth have become, a herd mentality, I think. Well, and I think the, the riots and the campus unrest in the 1960s you know, it had a slightly different nature to it. I mean, I think there were protests against the Vietnam War. Um, I think there were protests, you know, and valid ones for additional civil rights for Americans who are black and black students. I think there was um, a push as well, kind of in first or second wave feminism, I guess, that was also, that tended to be more on the on the left, you know, the new left spectrum. Um, but, you know, the, what's happening today is they are not trying to engage on the issues. They're just trying to silence those who they disagree with. So uh, that's, that is what distinguishes, you know, the riots that are taking place right now. Man. We're down to our last few minutes. Um, the book that you have came out, I believe, in April, correct? That's right. That's right. And where can people find that? Is that up on Amazon? It is. Uh, it was published by Bombardier Books and Postal Press, and it's called Splintered, Critical Race Theory and the Progressive War on Truth. And it is available uh, on Amazon and, and pretty much wherever books are sold. Well, unfortunately, Tom did not tell me about the book until I was doing my homework last night, and I'm going to have to beat him up, so we're going to have to get the book, if you can send me a copy, and we'll have you come back on and talk exclusively about it. How's that sound? Well, we'd be glad to do that anytime. Well, you're always welcome, Jonathan. It's always such a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you. Well, enjoy your Thanksgiving. we got Thanksgiving this coming week, so God bless you, and tell Tom I send my love. Okay, I will. Thank you so much. All right. Happy Check out Jonathan Butcher. Uh, Jonathan yep, Butcher sorry. at heritage.org. We're down to our last four minutes here, uh, Vito. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we were supposed to have Mike Hill uh, join us. Something must have come up where he disappeared. Maybe he's at the local bar with Curtis. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I'm going to get him in that trouble. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> but those listening, well, we will not be... Oh, it's been my pleasure, my pleasure at all. But this week is Thanksgiving, so we do not broadcast live on Thursday. We will have a pre-recorded broadcast up. I'm sorry for those that were watching the video. Uh, for some reason, the program locked up on me, even though it is showing that it's broadcasting. I couldn't switch scenes. I couldn't bring the other guests on there through it. Hopefully, we'll work out the kinks So when we come back in two weeks. So uh, I think that's all we got here, Vita. Well, thank you, and have a, have a uh, happy Thanksgiving, a safe Thanksgiving, and, and I really do appreciate the opportunity, Annie. And tell people where you will be on Monday so they can check out your show. Monday we'll be on Block Talk Radio. We're on Global Patriot Radio, the B2S Mazzito Show with Big Al on, on Monday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and it's right here on Blog Talk Radio. Well, I thank you, Vito, and you have a blessed holiday weekend, and we'll be talking to you uh, after Thanksgiving. Thank you, and you too, and stay safe. Good night. Goodbye. All right, you too.
All right. Good night. Uh, we will leave everyone with our song from my friend Gary Pecorella, Save America. So until then, I say good night and God bless. We'll see you next week.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.